For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. So, uh, one of the great things about living to this time of year, you've made it all the way through a bunch of things to get to this. You know, we're in pro day season, you've survived the combine, you made it through the entire all-star game season, you made it through the regular season, you made it through spring ball of the year before, all to get to this. We are in, quote, unquote, full swing, pounding on the home stretch of draft season. But we're also in what I like to call lying season, and what many call lying season. So if you have friends, and I have a few friends who are in the NFL, or at least friendly associates, maybe better we put them, you can still speak to them, but you have to take everything they tell you with several grains, sometimes hands full of salt. Not they're lying to you intentionally. Very often they've been given marching orders about but they can and can't say, or sometimes, even if it's not intentional mixed direction, teams may themselves change their minds at the last moment. But I've been joined by the one, the only Walker Kelly, to talk about two things. Uh, one, what you're still evaluating at this point in the process. Uh, obviously, no football's been played in quite some time, even if you count all-star games. And how much some of these things that happened in, you know, lying season, pro day season, post-comp, whatever you want to call it, uh, how, how much of those, how many of those things, how, how much you care about those things? So, once again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. The pleasure is very much mine. Uh, so, give me an idea of how your process works, because it's different for everybody. That's one of the other wonderful and sometimes challenging things about uh, draft evaluation is how differently you can do it. Uh, how does your process tend to work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody's got a different process. Um, typically, I like to uh, compile a list of people to watch first. Um, then I, I typically try to try to watch some of their uh, games against a, a better competition, or at least as good a competition as I can find. Um, some of the small school prospects, as I'm sure you know just about better than anybody, uh, are pretty tough to find good tape on. But uh, you know, we do our best and. Uh, and after I watch tape, make some notes, uh, get a you know preliminary tape grade going. Um, then usually we've we've got some games left in the season. We get to watch through those. Maybe adjust my grade a little bit based on that, based on the competition they face. Maybe uh, playing in a different role based on need for the team, that sort of thing. And then uh, once we get into the off season, uh, especially going up to the combine, we've got the all star games, which you can get uh, a little bit of information from, uh, especially going up against. Uh, guys who may play similar positions and, and will have similar types of draft grades. So you can see those guys kind of going up against each other in a way. Uh, and then at the combine, what I like to uh, look for is um, I really like to use as part of my analysis uh, Kent Lee Platty's uh, relative athletic scores. Um, I like to incorporate that in because while athleticism is clearly not everything as an NFL player, uh, it, it does factor in at least a little bit and uh 
And so I, I like to make that at least a little bit of a consideration. I mean, obviously it's talent first and tape first, but for me at least. But uh, but after that, uh, I, I like to make sure that they that the player at least has some sort of like a modicum of NFL athleticism as well. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, you. It's hard to find truly great NFL players who weren't also good athletes. And for the most part, the greats, when you talk about the historical greats, those who were Hall of Fame-level players, were usually above average, if not elite-level athletes. I take a look at, you know, obviously I have the advantage of being old, so I take a look at what I've learned throughout history, and I take a look at many of the things that you, you do, and then obviously I have the great advantage of being a very good friend of, of, of Jim Coburn, so he's got 50-some-odd years of data that he's been compiling and crunching that shows you here's what the production profile is of a good player, a guy who, you know, has a start 60 games, you know, plays at an NFL sort of midline level. Here's what the production mm-hmm. profile is of a guy who makes at least one Pro Bowl. Here's the production profile of a guy who makes three or more Pro Bowls. Here's a guy who's an All-Pro three times. So here's production profile. Here's a Hall of Famer's production profile. And you can then take what you think, and sometimes it's like, oh, aha, you know. Right. Do, some right. Guys, do some guys beat the odds? Of course. But they're, quote, unquote, beating the odds. It's good to at least know that, unless you want to do what's called hand solo scouting, where it's like, don't tell me the odds. But, um, but yes, it's good to have an idea of how much you're influenced by some things, because uh, there is such a thing as groupthink. It very much exists. Uh, it, it doesn't exist for, you know, we, the quote-unquote little guys. It exists with the big, quote-unquote big guys. I know for a fact I've had conversations with some of the quote-unquote big guys off the record, off camera, off whatever it is about guys, and then I see how different they're, you know, I talked to this, to this person in December about somebody or January about somebody, and now, you know, here we are. No football's been played since then, so they can't say it's the tape. Something's happened that has moved there. The mark they have on the player, and once again, maybe it's a bad combine or a great combine, depending upon what we're talking about. But a lot of times it's, well, I talk to this other guy who I respect. And all information is information. There's nothing wrong with being swayed by it, but don't pretend it's something else. If I talk to somebody, if I talk to Josh Norris, or if I talk to whoever, and they persuade me that I was wrong on a player, I'm more than willing to admit, okay, I talk to Josh Norris, or I talk to Ben Fennell, or I talk to whoever it is, and after thinking more about it, going back and look, I was too high on a player or I was too low on a player. I, I don't have a big, giant ego about this stuff, but mostly right. it helps because I'm old. It's, <laughs> when you first get into this, you get married to things. You don't want to dying on a hill and all that stuff. I'm past that. I don't want to die on any more hills. I want to learn. That's sort of my, my process. I'm old. I've been doing it for a long time. I wrote my first draft article before most of you were born, literally. I wrote my first draft article <laughs> in 1982. But despite that, I'm, I haven't got this thing figured out either. Uh, so for me, it's a process. And the more I can learn, the better I can learn, and the faster. You know, I don't have time to – because I'll have 30 more years to do this, Walker, probably. So, so in order to get to where I want to go, what are the things that can get me there? And like I said, for me, it was revolutionary a few years ago when I got to know Jim Coburn's work, which has evolved since then. I mean, every, we've all evolved since then, but – we're, people say, well, why bother knowing this? Why bother knowing that? You know, 
Um, I can learn all this from – conceivably, we don't need to time players, right? If, we, if the tape was everything, we wouldn't need the combine, right? Why would we right, bother right. the combine if the tape did everything for us? But the fact is that there are players who play in situations that allow them to thrive or prevent them from thriving, depending on how you want to put it. Um, so maybe we'll unlock or uncover something. And, of course, not everybody gets to go to the combine. So, obviously, there's pro days. The combine hasn't even been around forever. I'm old enough to remember before the combine, meaning the big one that happens in the apples. You know what I'm saying? They used to be combines, plural, when they were smaller, um, almost like when they later did the regional combines for, for small – for smaller school players, which they got rid of for reasons I'll never understand. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous success. They found players they would not have found otherwise, and I don't know. I was, like I said, mysterious why they didn't continue doing it. It was working. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, sometimes the NFL makes choices about just things I'm not sure I get. Uh, but they were finding players. There are guys playing the NFL now that they found a couple years ago through the, the regional combine program. I don't know if it was a cost thing where they said we're not finding enough players to justify it, or I don't know. I don't know. Well, who knows what they're, what they're what they give. Uh, but there are guys in the NFL now, right now, because of the program. So as we move forward, oh, as you move forward, uh, I want to ask you a few more questions about the things that, if something moves you, right? If so, so you start out you know, higher or lower or whatever direction on a player, what are the things that can cause your grade to change? Uh, what things can move a guy up or down once you sort of thought you knew what someone was, and then how does that change, if it changes in your, in your work? Um, I think the first thing uh, can be injuries. I mean, it seems obvious, but, I mean, there are certain players like uh, – I would imagine that Trey Adams probably would have declared this year had he not gotten hurt. Um, he's a very talented player, but the injury concerns are obviously there for him. Rodney Anderson's another guy who I think, based on just raw talent, would probably be RB1 this season, but because he has three separate injuries that have all been quite serious, um, it, it moves him down the board a little bit because there's a serious concern of whether he can hold up in the NFL. Um that, so that sort of thing can, can move a player up or down. And it can move a player up the board, too, if they've had injuries in the past but prove later in their college careers that those were more fluke than, than the pattern. Um, I think also being used differently can change a player. Uh, I've, I've seen players go from one role to another between seasons and suddenly rocket up boards because they're more suited to the role that they were playing in, say, their senior season than they were in their junior season. So that's something that can really change a grade as well. And uh, I, I think the third thing is the testing. Um, there, there are certain thresholds that you just kind of have to meet, and a player might look nice on tape, but then, you know, you get him in the tests and you realize, I, I'm not sure if this player has what it takes athletically to be an NFL player. Uh, and, and that is unfortunate sometimes, especially when you see somebody on tape you really like, and then you, you look at the, at, at the numbers and you think, wow. You know, maybe I was too high on them, but that's kind of part of the business. And uh, I think those three things, uh, injuries, role changes, and testing numbers are most of what makes up what, whether a guy moves up or down. But uh, like what you said as well, um, talking to people that I respect as well and reading other people's reports, if, you, if somebody that you respect says something about a player you might not have seen, uh, that, that's something that can make me go back. Um, like – 
there's certain people that I trust, uh, you know, a lot about certain positions, like a, a guy like Brad Kelly, trust him a lot with his wide receiver evaluations. So if I read Brad Kelly's report on a wide receiver and he says something that he likes about a player that I didn't see or that he doesn't like about a player that I didn't see, that tells me that I should go back and look. And I might not always agree with him, but it, it just, you know, it, it sticks out in my mind and it's something that I can go back and say, well, did I miss this? You know, what, did I not watch the tip correctly? Did, did I, uh, you know, watch the wrong game? Something like that. So, uh, you know, th there are a lot of factors that go into scouting, and that's part of the reason why it can be such a crapshoot at, at times. But, uh, but yeah, I, I would say those, those factors are, are really what ends up adjusting a grade from what I initially have just based on watching the tape. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've had, I had Brad Kelly on last year, and he's one of those guys, uh, obviously, he's something of a specialist. As you mentioned, wide receivers, he, he's got coaches, wide receivers. Uh, Pete Smith is a guy that has coached wide receivers. He's working with quarterbacks now at the school where he worked. Uh, I've gotten into it with Brad over certain players. Uh, I played defensive back. He played wide receiver, so maybe that's part of it. But um, there's, uh, you know, I'm half kidding at least about that. But there is a mindset difference between wide receivers and defensive backs. We're usually kind of the same size, kind of the same. We're sort of the same person, but there's a difference in mindset. And, of course, receivers always bring up hands. But there are defensive backs with great hands out there, people. I'm not one of them. I don't pretend that I am. But they are. They exist, so stop that. But uh, the, uh, what I have learned, right, People can argue about whether production is a trait or not. I, I, I say I treat production like it, like I treat other traits. Uh, now, how you just like how other traits manifest themselves, there's differences in how production manifests itself. But I treat it like I treat other traits. So a guy's figured out something if he's productive, right? <laughs> I remember right. Um, I remember watching uh, Leonard Johnson, right? Small, mm -hmm. slow Leonard Johnson, five eight and seven eighths. Leonard Johnson ran 4.71. Um, give six to Des Bryant when Des was a junior at Oklahoma State. The worst game of Des's entire career in college uh, was Leonard Johnson. Not, not, not some, you know, name some guy that ended up having a terrific pro career and was drafted, you know, in the first round. No, it was Leonard Johnson. Now, Leonard Johnson is a tough SOB, though he's small and slow. And he just let Des know right off the bat, this isn't going to be your day. And he got into Des's mind, he got into Des's face, he got into Des's heart and soul. If you, if you pull that game up on YouTube, you, we can talk about it later or if you didn't, if you didn't see it the first time around. But uh, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, uh, 2008, 9, whatever year it was. I guess it might have been 2009 or 10. And Leonard Johnson is in his jock. I mean, he... <laughs> I mean, it's one of the most courageous. Uh, I mean, I, I don't like to use that term very often, but it's clear that Leonard Johnson knew that they weren't going to be giving him a bunch of help, and he decided he wasn't going to need a bunch of help. He decided <laughs> Dev got like maybe two catches for a handful of yards in that game. And one of the, it's funny because one of them, when Dez finally got a catch, because he went like catchless for well, almost half time. It was almost half time for It was like, a six-yard back shoulder, and you would have thought he just won the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I'm not joking. Des jumped up. He, he uh, was like a little, little speed out, literally like six yards. And it was like I don't know, if it wasn't supposed to be back shoulder, but or a bit of a misthrown or whatever. But Des turns his body, you know, 
manages to shield Johnson away from it, who's still right on him like a wetsuit, and, uh, you know, lands out of bounds, jumps up, you know, holds the ball in the air, drops it in the face of Leonard Johnson, starts whooping and pounding his chest. And literally it was a six-yard reception. <laughs> I was like, wow. That was – it's the fact how, – how does – we all happy he was to let you know what, what, how rough a time Leonard Johnson was giving him that he got that excited over a six-yard reception. And I think he got maybe one more catch in the game for, like, another handful of yards. But it was literally the worst game of his entire collegiate career. And so I circled. I kind of liked Leonard Johnson, like, double circled it. And then, as you like, he measures out at 5'8 and 7'8, runs 4'7'1. I'm like, <sighs> like, he wanted to give him some other guy's body. It was like, if yeah. you had the guy's heart and mind and technique, and mental toughness, he could just put it in a different, you know, okay, the engine, it's, it's, it's a four-cylinder engine, and it's got a really low compression ratio, but if you could just boost it up, you know, because we're all supercharging that. But, yes, it certainly happens that tape isn't everything. Tape is important. I mean, tape is, tape, so I always said that production gives me the who. Tape gives me the how, and from what if I know enough about the scheme or things like that, it gives me the why. Why is this guy? Sure. You know, because that's Oliver Sean Gary, and I, we should spend a little time on him. Oliver Sean Gary people who you know come up my head every now and again um, keep pointing out what's well, the way he's used, the way he's used, like as if no other player has ever been asked to be used that way. Um, it happens every year. There's I could name twenty guys probably more than I've ever graded who've been used exactly the way Rashawn Gary has been. And once again, maybe it's just a function of being old. I'm not – this isn't a unique thing to me. It's like when we got the whole Miles Jack Wars of a few years ago. People kept saying, well, the reason his, his tackle numbers and such and such numbers don't match up with all the other great linebackers in the history of football is because he's, he's being used this particular way. He's not the only – linebacker, he's not the only linebacker in UCLA history to be used that way. I can name two other UCLA linebackers who played exactly the same way, one of whom actually played defensive back in the NFL, Carnell Lake, and the other one, a guy named Jerry Robinson, who played for the, actually played for the same college coach. When Dick Vermeil moved up from UCLA to coaching the Eagles, he drafted Jerry Robinson, who actually had a very, very fine NFL career. Uh, but he was a great coverage linebacker in college. He was a great coverage linebacker in the NFL. But despite that, he managed to be a much more productive collegian than Miles Jack ever was. And same with Carnell Lake, who was playing out of position, really, when he played linebacker in college at 207 pounds. But you can't tell me no other linebacker. Because those are the two other linebackers ever asked to do this. No, I can name two others at the same school. So you can't tell me no other linebacker in history has ever been asked to do that. Um, so, I mean... People like to make, you know, declarations, right, because it feels good to say this is the only, this is the best, this is the worst, this is whatever. But absolutes really are almost never true is what you learn if you live long enough. <laughs> There's always another example of this thing you think is a singularity. Mm-hmm. And if you live long enough, you learn a bunch of examples of this thing you thought was a singularity, uh, especially if you watch enough books. Uh, I, I watch more prospects probably than most people do. Some of them I know will probably never play in the NFL, but now there's other leagues and whatever. But if you don't know what guys who aren't going to play in the NFL looks like, then you don't know what guys that will play in the NFL looks like. Like you know what I mean? Like if you only watch 
50 players, you have a very poor understanding, you don't have to really pay attention to 50 players, of what the guys who probably won't make it look like. So you have no basis for comparison. Uh, so I try to watch guys who probably won't make it too. But some of the guys who probably won't make it, make it. <laughs> That's the fun thing, right? <laughs> it's when those guys that um, everyone thinks won't make it, does make it. Uh, I'll go back to Trey Watts, who is the son of uh, former, well, former All-American and also former Congressman Julius Caesar Watts, better known as J.C. Watts, who was a tremendous option quarterback of Oklahoma back in the days. And his son went to Tulsa. Once again, uh, shifty, you know, your classic hot try-hard, super high character, but not quite big enough to be a big back, not quite fast enough to be a scat back, caught the ball well, but not so well that he was a James White type. He could do a little bit of everything just well enough. And once again, I was a fan, got to know him a little bit, saw him at the NFLPA game, and said, you know, I know this guy's kind of marginal, but I think he's got something, right? And, you know, I have people tell me, no, you know, he's got something, but that something is in an NFL something. And, yeah, he's hung around for like three years in the league, which was, you know, once again, you're not, you know, you're not going to beat your chest with a guy that you like to hang around for three years in the periphery of the NFL. But it was great seeing a guy who didn't, who frankly didn't quite have enough talent, fight his way onto an NFL roster for a couple of years just based on, frankly, want to, for lack of a better way of putting it. And sometimes those guys become Tom, uh, Tom Brady. Now, that's obviously the great outlier, right, when a guy who's not quite this enough and not quite that enough and not quite this other thing enough, you know, and a guy who at one point went into a timeshare, you know, during his senior year of college even at the quarterback position, which was silly. I mean, if you – was again back to you know just watch the tape. I did. I'm old enough to have watched uh, very closely uh, the snaps that the two of them took in the same game with the same offense, everything else. And despite how talented, and once again, you know, proving that talent isn't everything. Um, Tom Brady wasn't the most talented quarterback, even on his own team. Scott Dreisbach was probably more talented. They had a couple of guys with more talent. Uh, if you're talking about strong arm, being able to move around, stuff like that. It's but what none of them did, amongst others, he was involved in a massive quarterback battle. When he first gets there, he's mm-hmm. behind um, Greasy, right? So yeah. he spends a couple of years fighting his way. But he's like, wait, he's behind Guys like Dreisbach, he's, there's a bunch of other guys. He's fighting his way through. There's dudes you've never heard of who were ahead of Tom Brady on the depth chart for a while in Michigan. <laughs> and I'm not joking when I say that. I mean, literally, including Scott Luffler, who now you know as a coach, uh, was amongst the, the many Michigan quarterbacks who at one point got more snaps than Tom Brady. Uh, but eventually, through Tom Brady-ness, he begins to climb over the carcasses of these more talented quarterbacks, slowly but surely pushing them off the side of the road or whatever it is, you know, that until he becomes a starter. And then Drew Henson comes along. Like, and he's like, uh-uh. Like, I've come too far. I've been, he was like, yeah, on the depth side or something at some point. Like, no, this is not happening. And eventually he, you know, works up the, the nerve to tell, you know, Coach Lloyd Carr, look, I – I, I know what you see in him, but I'm the better quarterback, and I need to 
take all the snaps. <laughs> you know, I mean, basically just because I said it like this, I don't know what we're doing with this. You know, and he'll put his turn if he's good enough, but right now I'm the better quarterback. And like Carter been talked to that by like, before we sat for a while at his office after Brady kind of storms out and says, you know what, he's right. He is the better quarterback. I'm going to stop messing around with this. And, you know, the last few games was his senior season. He didn't have to timeshare with Henson anymore. And then Henson the next year doesn't even play. College football decides to go play baseball. And of course, the rest is, you know, draft bust history, whatever we call it. But it is. It is clearly not just traits, right? People always say traits, traits, traits. Traits is cool, but if it were just traits, once again, we wouldn't need tape. We wouldn't need production. We would just need to test. We would just test. You know what I mean? We would test dudes. If it's all traits, hey, how far, how far can you throw it? How high can you jump? How, you know, if, that, if that's all, it's not traits. There's a long line of. I mean, a huge morgue filled with the corpses of guys with amazing traits in terms of football talent who never did anything, anything uh, at all. <laughs> so you've got to have something else. And this is one reason that I, I do, I actually try to interview as many players as possible, is you start to develop a sense after a while. And guys all have been coached up. And especially if you can start talking to them early on in the process, that get coached up. Uh, they have friends or family members or whatever, even before they, you know, get agents to tell them certain things about the process. Some guys do, not all. But some have somebody, whether it be guys they've played with who are told them certain things. But, but at some point, there's a real person in there. And if you know, if you know enough about sort of how, how to position certain questions, you can – which is why the NFL still does interviews, even though, especially at the Combine, Everybody there has been coached up a lot. Uh, if you're at the combine, you've got an agent. If you're at the combine, you're considered an NFL player. So someone has paid someone probably fairly well to prepare you for this process. Uh, it doesn't always work, though. Even with all of that, right, we still see every few years somebody has a, quote, unquote, terrible time in the meeting room, which sometimes right. is not true, but you know what I mean. But sometimes it is. Right. Sometimes sometimes. Even in lying season, sometimes the truth bites is what you the service. Because some guys, no matter what, can't stop being themselves. Even when there's <laughs> millions of dollars at stake, right? Okay, come on, we just need you to stop being yourself for just a couple more weeks, and then we'll all be rich. And some guys just can't do it. They don't, yeah. No matter how much money is at stake, no matter what else is going on, I mean, Reuben Foster, right? No matter what, you can't stop being Reuben Foster. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. No matter how much it would benefit him to stop being himself, he cannot do it. No. I said that half, well, half tongue-in-cheek, partially tongue-in-cheek. Uh, football is a difficult sport to play, to coach, to evaluate. It is the most difficult of all the sports, of all the major sports in our nation because, yeah. uh, one, is it complexity, right? There's so many different things mm-hmm. that go into every single play being executed. And the greatness of one player can't hide the uh, deficiencies of all the others, unlike, to some extent, if your pitching is amazing in baseball, you can hide a wealth of other, of other weaknesses on your team because who's going to know that your third baseman has a terrible arm if you can just make sure that you strike everybody out, right? Who's going to know, sure. that, you're, you're, you know that your center fielder has, doesn't have enough range to really play center field, but you're keeping it out there because of his bat if you can just keep the balls away from getting to him in center field? You know, if your pitching is good enough, you can hide a wealth of otherwise 
you know, other defensive deficiencies that you might have on your team. And in basketball, you have a truly transcendent player. I mean, quick, name the other guys that Allen Iverson carried on his back to the, to the NBA Finals. It's, it's a who's who of who once you get beyond um, to Henry Matumbo and to, I guess, a slightly less think guys like George Payne, maybe? Eric um, Snow. Eric Snow, there you go. Uh, Kevin Ollie was, I think, still collecting uh, checks. Was Dallin Bear on that team? I'm trying to think if he was still there then. He might have been. But, I mean, it really is. Like, the roster is, I mean, it's shocking. When you go back and look, that was an NBA oh, Finals yeah. roster. You see yourself, like, man, I was just amazing, you know? Like, you can, you can tell you tells you everything you need to know about it. Like, he should be in the Hall of Fame for that alone. If he did nothing else but to get that team into the NBA Finals, that should put you in the, in the, in the Hall of Fame. Um, you can't do that in football. No matter how no. great you are. There have been many, 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 many great players who, you know, for whatever reason, never got the kind of success in terms of how their career turned out in terms of wins and whatever. But you're dependent upon coaches, right? Are your coaches good? Try to think of one of those great, 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 you know, dynasties that had bad coaching. They don't, that doesn't exist, right? No matter how good the yeah. players are, if your coach right. is bad, what matter, Right. Uh, even if your coaching's good, you could, I mean, the Bengals in the, in the 80s had good, not great, but good coaching. Forrest Gregg was a solid representative professional coach. Dick LeBeau is Dick LeBeau. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam White was sort of like a poor man's Bill Walsh, right? Um, a lot of offensive innovation-ish things going on, but he didn't quite have Walsh's patience or Walsh's calm demeanor. A uh, little more... He was sort of like the first John Gruden to some extent. He was a, he was a snark fest. Um, I'm sorry you're too young to remember Sam Weiss. He was, he was quotable. I'll put it, that's a good way to put it. He was <laughs> quotable. Like if you were, if you were, uh, if you were a, a stringer, if you were a, um, uh, one of the pool reporters and one of the, you know, one of the people who had to follow the team around, and you were like, oh, man, I'm stuck. Oh, let me go talk to Sam Weiss. Like, soon he'd be unstuck. Like, oh, okay, I got something now. Uh, Sam would give you stuff. Uh, he right. was one of the things he's most fam- one of the most famous for is during a game when um, Cincinnati Bengals fans didn't like a call and started throwing snowballs onto the field. He they put White on the public address system and he said, "Come on, we're not in Cleveland." Uh, and of course, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was, uh, but to his credit, I mean, it was not a very nice thing to do, I guess. But to his credit, it worked. Like people. Like, right. stop throwing snowballs walls at that point. Uh, but, yeah, so that was, that was sort of Sam White in a nutshell. And he was, he was a very good offensive mind and had some success. But the Bengals never had a Bill Walsh, except for when they had Bill Walsh, right? <laughs> because that's he was, right. he got his start in NFL coaching there. But they didn't keep him, despite the fact that there was a sort of a handshake agreement between the late Paul Brown and Bill Walsh, that when Paul Brown stepped down, that he would go see the coach. But uh, he just... Paul Brown began to sort of dislike or distrust or something Walsh towards the end of his tenure there and went with, you know, the world-famous Blanton Collier instead. Uh, so we – and now the Bengals get to be the Bengals instead of the 49ers, right? I mean, it's amazing how these little things, these little decisions change everything. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, think about this. Because when, when, when actually they talked to Bill Walsh about Ken Anderson – he said that Ken Anderson could do pretty much everything that, Bill, that uh, Joe Montana could do. Uh, 
he didn't have quite the same surrounding, you know, talent, obviously. There, there, was, there was no Jerry Ryan scooting up, you know, in, the, in that locker room. But, but if you just, for comparison's purposes, want to see how much better he was than most of the other quarterbacks of the year, look at Ken Anderson's 1974 versus the rest of the quarterbacks in 1974. And I picked 1974 because that was the peak of what we call the dead ball era. So post-World War II, there had generally been a trend upward in offense, not unlike now, not quite as, you know, not quite, as, not quite like now, but a genuine, general trend upward. Obviously, the game was still running game and defense, you know, throughout the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s and 80s. Right. But defense has got very good in the 70s. <laughs> I don't know how to really put it. Yeah. And in 1974, Scoring and quarterbacking took a hit, and literally it went, they, they, they were going the other direction. So it, was, it, it looked as if, for the most part, like I said, Ken Anderson was a great, great uh, sort of exception to the rule, but it got to the point where they've had to do something. And then, of course, they made the, the rule. The, that's when we got the illegal contact penalty became, became a rule after that season in order to try to goose up offense. It didn't work, right? Once, once wide receivers didn't have to deal with, you know, true bump and run. Because in the old days, I almost remember true bump and run, meaning you bumped the guy all the way down the field, and it was completely legal. Until the ball arrived, you were allowed to continually contact a wide receiver. So when you go back and look at what Bart Starr, Johnny Unitas, whoever was doing in the, in the 50s and 60s, you may not be impressed until you remind yourself, uh, oh, that's right, you could – put a saddle on a receiver and ride him like a pony down the, down the field in those days. Right. Uh, so offense has been – the NFL has been sort of uh, priming the pump offensively ever since. So mm-hmm. we had the, the what some people call the Mel Blunt rule, right, the illegal contact rule comes in, and they enforced it more tightly ever more and more since then. Then they've put in more and more rules about – what you can and can't do to well, every position on offense, but especially the quarterback. Uh, so now we have rules about what parts of the quarterback you can hit. We have rules about, I mean, we were very protective of our quarterbacks now. If you, if you, if you t- hit a quarterback hard nowadays in the NFL, you better do it exactly right or else you're in trouble. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see now that smaller quarterbacks, you know, who used to, really have a fight on their hands. Uh, we'll see if that changes. I mean, I remember watching, I mean, obviously, Fran Tarkington is the Hall of Fame, and he's uh, generously listed at six feet tall and stood right next to the man. He's maybe 5'10", three quarters at most, uh, and was probably about 185 or so pounds in, for most of his career. And this is when you could really hit quarterbacks and Fran was playing. I mean, really hit him. Uh, and he played no, for uh, 18 years. At, yep. And no, no intentional grounding. Back there, or, or uh, you couldn't, oh, you couldn't ground oh. the ball. Oh well, yeah, you, it, you know, right. So there's a whole bunch of things that we couldn't do, right? You quarterback took a beating uh, in those days. So a lot of what I hear people say, and one thing amazes is the lack of, of sense of history. But there've been lots of. I mean, Lynn Dawson was five eleven and one ninety at most. Right. Sonny Jurgensen five eleven and changed a little heavier. He's kind of chunky boy, about two oh two. Though I think he enlisted him at less, uh, you know, try to try to you know make him feel better about himself. But but <laughs> there have been many small quarterbacks, and the smallest of them all was a guy they called the Little General, Eddie LeBaron, who was a yeah. real war hero in, in Korea. Okay, 
Right. He, he was 5'7". Listed at 5'7". His Marine Corps records had him at 5'5 five, five and 3 quarters, actually, is what his Marine Corps records showed. But whatever size he actually was, um, once again, played in, in an area could hit a quarterback with a, you know, truck transaxle, uh, and it was, you know, play on, and he managed to be a decent NFL quarterback. Uh, and it was not easy for him, obviously. He was as small as – I mean, I don't think he can get much smaller than that and still, still get it done, but he managed to get it done at a level that was unusual. I think it didn't hurt that he was the kind of guy who could literally charge a machine gun now uh, and managed to, you know, survive. But we now have these, this great test case, right? So we all saw what, what Russell Wilson managed to do, and obviously Russell Wilson played in some pretty conventional offenses. When he was at NC State, the offensive coordinator was Norm Chow. Norm Chow's not some wild-eyed, run-and-shoot dude. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's basically as pro as pro gets in the collegiate level. Norm Chow, when he was at USC, you know, was the guy that guided people like Palmer, uh, Carson Palmer and Matt Leiner and that, that whole bunch. And then when he goes to, to NC State, he carries, you know, he's usually the same offense with him. Philip Rivers ran the same offense that, 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 uh, that Russell Wilson did. And then Russell Wilson goes from there. I mean, he goes to the only more, the only place you can find, other than possibly, I guess Alabama around that same time, but the only more conventional offense in America, right, at least in college America, is Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin is not even in this time period. I mean, like, Wisconsin is an offense from another time, and, which is not a bad thing, right, because it, it, you can't say they're pumping up your stats when you play quarterback at Wisconsin. Nothing's padding your stats. If you're getting it done at Wisconsin at quarterback, you're doing the padding. They're not padding anything. You're doing the padding. You're, and he has one of the seasons for the ages. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, Walker, and I think it's one of the top five quarterback seasons I've ever seen was his last year. I mean, I can't argue. And, and he did it. I mean, once again, it, it, he, has, he had some Decent wide receivers, Jared Abadaris, whatever. But it's, these weren't these weren't guys that were carrying him. I'll put it that way. His offensive line was great. There was, you know, I think three of those guys are still in the league that, that played on that offensive line. So you could certainly say that. I think one uh, there's another guy who is only out of the league due to injury. But I think three or four of those guys played the same number of NFL snaps that were on his offensive line. Uh, he had a, a decent tight end, and even the backup tight end, well, backup then, I think, who later on be a starter, are, are in the league still. But it was really Russell Wilson. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't, that offense has not looked that good before, nor since. Uh, it is notable to note that if you just watch Wisconsin football for, I don't know, go far back as you want to go, there's how their offense looks. You know, oh, wow, hey, running backs, running backs, running backs, great running backs, many of them, in fact. But then you get Russell Wilson, and he just, it just, it's this, it's such this huge blip on the, like, this, this anomaly, like, what happened here? And then he goes, and it goes right back. So it's clear that I don't care if you don't care about production. If all you do is watch tape, his tape was, right, I mean, there's nothing other than height. And I remember getting to fight some people about his height back in the old days before people started to relax on this whole you have to be six foot three thing. Um, he did everything that tall quarterbacks do except be tall. You know what I mean? He drove the ball down the field. He killed you from inside the pocket. Uh, he shrugged off hits in the pocket because he, he may not be tall, but he's not, he's not thin. 
he's built like a running back or a strong safety. Right. He's thick. He's a strong dude with a big frame. Uh, he just, just isn't a long frame, but it's a big frame. Thick, you know, I mean, thick shoulders, you know, a 16 and a half an inch neck. I mean, just, he's thick. I don't know. <laughs> he's not a thin dude. So I was a, you know, I was a defender, obviously, of his, and I thought people who kept whining about his height either had never watched him play football or, I mean, because he did everything that you could do. He played behind this enormous offensive line that was essentially an NFL offensive line in a very conventional offense. Like, they don't come more conventional. I don't know what else you want. They weren't spreading and shredding at Wisconsin. It was really 1970s football is what he was really doing. So it was actually, actually, he got more spread stuff when he got to the NFL than when he was doing it with yeah. Johnson. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a little different with Kyler simply because he is in an offense that's about getting athletes in space and, you know, creating easier, not easy, but easier throws. I mean, he made some, some pretty high difficulty throws, as obviously did Baker Mayfield before him. And it helps, I think, that people got to see what Baker did. And they're not quite the same. And as, and as interesting as Kyler is, I still have Baker a little bit above him, not so much because I don't like certain things about Kyler, but I think Baker's processing of information is still a bit above. above well, partially because he's playing football. I mean, that, that, is, that is a fair thing to point out. Baker played a lot of football. You know, played, played in a couple of different places, uh, played a lot. You know, five years yeah. in college, he saw more stuff, right? He, he, the year, he was grand scout team the one year he had to sit out, and from what I've been told by people who were on the program, was ripping up people in practice. Because he couldn't play, he decided to be the best practice quarterback the world had ever seen, and was just destroying. Just his, that's, he was a, like one of the great scout team quarterbacks in the history of scout teams. Uh, and then when he finally got to play, you know, he showed us what he could really, 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 really do. And so obviously Kyler's more of a one-year wonder. Uh, you know, obviously sat, also sat one year and ran scout team, but it was a little different. Uh, not that he didn't have a chip on his shoulder, because I'm sure he did, but, I mean, I don't know if anybody will ever successfully carry a chip. Because, you know, because you can have a chip, but some people get crushed underneath it. It just made... It just made Baker stronger, carried that because he, you know, walks on twice. I mean, it's, it's a legend, right? He's now literally a legend. Well, our Baker, grandchildren will hear about this. Yeah. Our grandchildren will hear about Yeah, he's got a whole bag of chips <laughs> on his shoulder. <laughs> yes. Thank you, a whole bag of chips on his shoulder, yes. I mean, our grandchildren will hear about the legend of Baker Mayfield, how he walked on twice and, you know, you know yeah. all the stuff, all the crazy stuff, you know, the pre, pre-game dancing and everything else. I think Kyler will succeed. I don't think we're going to, at least not early on, we're going to see the same sort of success that Baker has. I think Baker is, it's similar like with Russell Wilson. It's unfair to expect a guy to come out of the box and be that good. Uh, once again, Russell Wilson got played a lot of football, two different universities, two, learned two different offenses, was a captain at two different places. You don't see that every day. Um, so, so these are guys, once again, and you know, even though Russell Wilson does it more smoothly and more diplomatically, also giant chip on his shoulder. Uh, you know, he just plays it off better. He doesn't walk around showing you the chip the same way that Baker does. He's not going to stare you down or whatever. But 
Look, trust me, Russell Wilson has a big, still now has a big old chip on his shoulder because he still, he still, he still knows how was I a third round draft pick? Like that never leaves these guys. It never leaves Brady that he was the hundred ninety selection. He will go to his grave thinking about that. Yeah, you know the rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rings take some of the sting out of it, I'm sure, and being married to a supermodel probably takes some of the sting out of it as well. But, but it, it, right, I would hope. But it never. But you can tell it never leaves. Like you can tell it never leaves. Like I bet you could still get him pretty fired up if you brought it up to him right now today. It's like I know you could. Yeah, I mean, he still tries to. He's still trying to show them. You know what I mean? Twenty something years later. He's still trying to show them. I'll show you. Dude, that was 1999. You know? No, I'll never be over it. Uh, character, we're sort of talking about character, evaluation of personality of character. And there are teams that give personality profiles and, you know, various different ways of testing people's responses. And, you know, guys practice all this stuff nowadays. But... Still, once again, who you are at some point shows through. Some people say they don't evaluate or don't factor in character. I don't see how you can't because every NFL team does. If you're you're going to do this, then what are you doing if you're saying I don't – once again, what role does that play in your process and how do you decide how much risk to take or to invest in a guy that clearly maybe isn't quite wired the way that you would want a person to be wired to play for you? Uh, I mean, it can be tough, obviously. I mean, there's certain things that maybe NFL teams would consider red flags that I might not. I mean, I think a big thing, a big issue right now is uh, marijuana usage, especially as a a pain medication, as like uh, a a different way to go about it instead of using like opioids or pills. Uh, I, I think that that's something that, many players and even, you know, media members and higher-ups in the league are starting to become a little bit more progressive about. And I think that the that, that usage of marijuana in that way will be uh, allowed in, in these sports in the in sometime in the near future. But, I mean, all, that always used to be a big red flag. And he's a drug user. He, he's not going to take football seriously, this, sort, this and that. And, you know, I, I wouldn't make that out to be – as much of a big deal, but I mean, if a player has, uh, you know, a violent arrest record on on their, you know, on their docket, or you know, they're you know, punching women at bars, like with Joe Mixon. I mean, obviously, extremely talented person had some people at Oklahoma who backed him up and said that he was a good person and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, it, it's it's on tape. You saw what he did. It, it's awful. And you know, for me, as if I were a GM. I probably wouldn't take the risk on that player. That's not to say that I'm necessarily right or wrong, but it, it just, to me, does, doesn't seem like the risk is worth it with, with that sort of sort of thing. I mean, we see with Tyreek Hill, he's an outstanding player, but he had character concerns at West Alabama, and we see just today it comes out that he's now being investigated for abusing his son, breaking his son's arm. And, you know, a few years ago, he was, in, you know, involved with violent crime with his girlfriend at the time and so you, you see how that violence comes across i mean adrian peterson suspended for a year for beating on his kid and then comes out and admits in an interview that he still slaps up his kid so 
you know, the, these things, the, there, are cer- there are certain things, especially with the, the vi- violence, that I think seem to be recurring more often than not, and that's kind of where I draw the line. But if it's just like, you know, like a little petty arrest or something, like, I mean, I wouldn't have been upset with, I, I wouldn't have changed my grade on Jameis Winston just for stealing crab legs. I would change my grade for Jameis Winston for, uh, you know, potentially being involved in a sexual assault allegation. And then he comes to, you know, it comes to fruition in the pros where he's, uh, you know, accused of groping an Uber driver. It comes out that he ended up doing that. So he has to, you know, he, he loses his job for a little bit, uh, you know, has to, you know, pay pay up in civil court, that sort of thing. And it, it's those things that are more concerning. I mean, these kids, these kids are kids. So every now and then you're going to make a mistake. And if you get, you know, there are little things that aren't so bad. But uh, but there there are certain you know certain crimes that that you really got to watch out for. But you know, in terms of character, I'm not going to knock a kid for necessarily their answers at the podium or in an interview with in a pressure situation. Really, it's just the violent stuff that they get to me and would knock my grade on a player. Do you treat it differently with guys who are, well, we just mentioned, Jameis Winston, Baker Mayfield, obviously a little less severe situation with him. Do you treat quarterbacks differently when it comes to that? Obviously, some people say, you know, well, if it's your defensive end who's out at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's one thing, but if it's your quarterback, uh, do you treat that differently? Uh, I'm not so sure if I would necessarily say I treat it differently in terms of the act. I mean, it, 
obviously, especially if your quarterback's an established player and, and you're looking for them to maybe change the culture, so that sort of thing, um, then you expect them to be, you know, to set a good example for the rest of the players and that sort of thing. Even, I mean, these guys are adults, so obviously they have free will. They're going to do what they want to do. But, you know, you, you do want the leaders of your team to set an example. And in today's passing-driven NFL, pretty much every good team, your quarterback is one of the leaders on your team. So yeah. while I'm not, I'm not certain that you're looking at the acts differently themselves, I think you're just kind of hoping that their, your quarterback understands their role on the team and knows that their judgment might have to be adjusted uh, accordingly. Okay, that totally makes sense. So we're deep into pro day season. Uh, we already talked about the combine. How how do you treat pro days? Do you treat them as if they were the combine, but just at a different location? Do you treat them somewhat differently from the combine? Um, I treat them a little differently. I, I think pro days you got to take with a little bit more of a grain of salt, just because the environment can be a lot more controlled. Obviously, these schools want their players to do well. Um, there are certain universities who are very notorious for um, fudging times a little bit. Uh, LSU, Michigan, I mean, the, these schools have notoriously fast tracks. Uh, a lot of people will add even like a full tenth of a second to 40 times uh, reported from these pro days. And, and it's understandable from the school's perspective, obviously, you know, it, it helps with them with recruiting and it helps their player and their player can then, you know, get back to the school more effectively as well. So, you know, it's a win-win if the player does better at their pro day. Um, for the small school guys, I try to take it pretty much as is because that's their only chance. And, and so, uh, you know, with those guys, I'm excited to see their numbers more so, but, um, the the higher level guys that perform at the combine and then go to pro day just to try to improve their scores, I'm not going to take that into account too much just because of how controlled the environment is and how much everyone involved wants the players' numbers to be better. Uh, I, I think that that can lead to uh, some type some dishonesty, not not malicious in, intent, but just uh, you know dishonesty out of out of good intentions from the school and from the player, I, I would I would say. Right. I think there's a couple of things. Uh, as you said, the, the, the surface or the, the, the situation itself is obviously a little more conducive. The players are so much more well-rested. They slept in their own bed. They ate whatever it is they normally eat. You know, the, the combine isn't a grind. It's exhausting. I mean, I got tired covering it when I was there. I didn't have to run or jump or anything. I was, I was like, oh, man, this thing's all day. I'm beat. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I can imagine why. And, and they do the testing on the second day that the guys are there, which I think is intentional. I think they want to wear the guys out a little bit. I mean, about sort of how you respond to stress or pressure or whatever. Now, sure. if you wanted to maximize the guys' athletic performance, they would get there. You would, you know, have them stretch a little bit, do the, I guess, do a little bit of medical to make sure they're not going to have a massive stroke while you're testing them. And then you would have, test them right away, then finish the rest of the medical testing, uh, and then go on to the night staying up, you know, till whatever time. And then these sort guys go as late as they could go. Now they they put a, I can't be, I think 11 o'clock is the last 
uh, time to let you set for the for the the night um, interviews. But in the old days, uh, I'm old enough to remember back when. I mean, there were guys who were getting bed at three o'clock in the morning back in the old days, and some finally someone said, "This is ridiculous. You know, we can't wait this to get." But uh, like here it is, we're talking about all these things about you know uh, making things fair and treating you know treating people a certain way, and they used to grab guys in the hallway. It used to be a free for all. Now it's a little more controlled. Now they go about uh, the process of setting up interviews and things like that, as opposed to just you know, feeding frenzy, you know, back when, like, Deion Sanders was there, you know, back in those days, you, you would just, you would, it wouldn't be a schedule. You would just see a guy, he'd grab him and say, hey, come talk to us, here, take the step. Of course, Dion, as he tells it, he would ask, where are you guys traffic? And, if, you know, if they were at the top five, he'd be like, I don't think we're going to need to do this. And he would just keep going. Um, you're a top five team, I'll talk to you. You know, but anybody outside the top five, Dion would say, you know, I, I appreciate the interest. But I don't think we're gonna need to do all that, and you well, just keep that. on moving. Uh, yeah, yeah. that was true. I mean, that's that's his approach. They said during uh, during during Dion's combines, uh, the day before his forty, he was uh, up playing playing cards until three a.m. and then he just kind of like yeah. pulls up, doesn't stretch, and runs a four two seven. Yes, because he's Dion Sanders. I don't I don't exactly. recommend. Uh, <laughs> I don't recommend, I don't recommend doing that. Uh, I did that. I terrible special cat. Right. Yes. You clearly a special cat in a bunch of different ways. Uh, so you, as you said, you, you put together your grades. You you watch as much as you can. Some people say, "Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't bother watching, you know, guys live. I only watch them, you know, whatever." I, I do both. Um, my first watching of most guys, I try to watch them live if I can't. And do I miss things? Of course. You know, you're going to miss things watching guys live. But I, I, mm-hmm. I do like to see what my immediate reaction is and then compare it to when I later watch, you know, you know what I've DVR'd or if I'm on draft breakdown or whatever the heck it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a guy that swears by cut-ups for several reasons. One is things happen that you miss in terms of cut-ups. But you don't get a sense of game flow, obviously. But also, even I've, at certain positions, I pay a lot of attention to guys' conditioning, right? So if I don't get a sense of how many – okay, I've seen only the actual plays. I'm not seeing the times the guy's tapping his helmet saying, during a series, like, i got to get out of here. I can't keep – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm beat. I'm gassed. Especially at certain positions, I want to know how many plays in a row can a guy play effectively. Which cut-ups prevent you from being able to, to get a sense of. So I, I think everything has a place in the process, but I, I'm a big fan of watching the whole game. As time-consuming as it might be, that is where I, I really like to put most of my eggs in the full game basket whenever possible. And supplement, you know, with cut-ups. Supplement with other ways of watching the player but my preference, even for the small school guys, if I, if I say, hey, do you have any full games? And some of them do. Some of them say, oh, well, let me get a hold of so-and-so or email, blah, 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 whatever. And I, if I can get a full game, I, I have only a couple of full games on Donald Parham, but he is ridiculous in those, <laughs> in those games. Now, lower level competition, sure. But I don't think there's a level of competition that can really handle that kid. I think we're all going to look back and think, wow, why weren't we higher on him? Uh, especially with the modern way that tight ends are used. He might have struggled in the 1960s because 
most teams use their tight end essentially as a third tackle uh, who occasionally caught the football. But that's not what the tight ends of now are. You know, the tight ends of now are mostly giant pass-receiving threats who block some. And there's a handful of really good blockers, but it's literally a handful. I can't think of beyond, you know, the, the, the tight end ones, not the quote-unquote blocking tight ends, but the TE ones amongst the guys who are receiving tight ends. I'm not sure what he is. A couple of them are really, really good blockers. And now that Jason Witten is back, I guess that adds one more. Uh, one, now he got one back. But, but it's really a handful. I mean, Kelsey's a really good blocker. Um, if Gronkowski comes back, he's a very good blocker amongst the receiving tight ends. Uh, Man, I like Kittle as a blocker Olsen. to an extent. Yeah, right? There we go. Right, Greg Olson's full-service tight end. But there's a handful. I mean, literally a handful. Um, and then it gets hard. Once you get beyond five or six guys, you're, you're struggling for it. So, and Valapon's not a bad blocker. I mean, he's a guy I, feel, I think will need to go a little stronger. Uh, but I just think that people are going to, like I said, be like, how, oh, wow, how do we not, how do we miss all this guy? How do we not know how good he was? Well, he's only been incredibly dominant. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, I, yes. wish, I, wish, I wish he had more chances to show that. I would, I would love to see him. I was shocked we didn't get invited to the combine. Yeah, me too. That was, that was appalling. Yeah, because he would have been doing beast things, I believe, <laughs> the oh, People would have been, people been shocked at how fast he would have run. They would have been shocked at how high he would have jumped. I think he would have caught every ball. Uh, the, the things you can doubt about him are not, are not the, the sexy things, right? Uh, he, he's going to run fast. He's going to jump high. He's going to catch the ball well. Uh, I don't know how he would have done on some of the bad drills. I think he would have you know, probably done better than some might have suspected he would do, but I think it would have been, that would have, if you're looking to, to pick apart, that might have been something you could have picked apart. But the stuff that people get excited about, 40, uh, three-cone, vertical, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I wonder, I'm not sure what he would have done on the bench, but I think he's stronger than people might suspect. I don't think he would have been, you know, 30 reps or 20 reps even, but I think he would have been in the upper teens, despite his yeah. length. Uh, and he's clearly has room to, I mean, if you've seen him in person, he's got room to put more. He's sort of the Montez sweat, you know what I mean, of Titans, in that if you look at it, it's like, oh, this guy could put on 18 pounds in, in a weekend, you know? <laughs> I mean, this frame's got room. <laughs> I can think of those right, kind of right. Plenty of room. If you wanted him to be 270, he could do that. I wouldn't recommend it, but he could weigh 270. I don't think it would be yeah, hard yeah. even for the late 270. I, I don't. I wouldn't recommend it. I, I'd be happy with him in the upper 250s, quite frankly. But yeah. that was one of those sort of head slappers. Um, a lot of people were invited about uh, were upset about Divino Zigbo not getting um, mm. not getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was the one that a lot of people didn't get. like. What? Well, you know, what did he do wrong? Um, obviously, we know what happened with Jeffrey Simmons. Then he got hurt anyway. Uh, Jalen Ferguson. Had a had an invitation got got it pulled back. Uh, see, who else was sort of a really missed them being there at the combine? There was a Anthony, lot of really good Anthony Ratliff Williams. Ratliff Williams is a guy. I mean, I'm not quite as high on him as, as some people are, but I think he Me deserves neither, to be there. Yeah, I think he deserves. I do agree, he deserved to be there. 
Um, there's a lot of really good defensive backs, and some of them, for whatever reason, didn't get invited. Uh, there is a – I sort of hope B.J. Blunt would have gotten invited, even if you wanted him to show he could play safety. I mean, to me, that makes it almost more, you know, necessary that you have him there because he's a um, undersized linebacker who has played super well. Uh, everywhere he's played, you know, he killed it at McNeese mm-hmm. State. He was terrific at the Shrine game. He was, I was kind of hoping right. he'd get the call up from Senior Bowl, um, which unfortunately didn't happen. But, he, yeah, he's 203 pounds. Uh, he could probably put on 10 pounds. And if you don't mind small, you probably throw a little more. You'd probably carry, you'd probably carry 217 pounds, which is a little heavier than Deion Buchanan was and about the size that Mark uh, – uh, Barron was. Barron. Now, yeah. right. now, we've reached this sort of period where you're, an NFL team is going to finally go ahead and in the charade and just say we're a base 335 or a base 425. No team has officially done it yet. But you're in right. nickel 55, 56, 57, 58% of the staff. Everybody. There's no team out there that is playing – with three or four linebackers on the field, depending on what, what offense, what defense you run, of more than 44, 43, 40. I mean, it, it's funny. They still introduced the other, all the linebackers now as starters, but one of those guys isn't playing starters, starters, uh, starters snaps, even though he's introduced as a starter. And somebody's nickel. I mean, Avante Maddox, if you let us sort of talk about who is the secret Defensive MVP, for the, uh, not MVP, but you know what I mean, like sort of the lifesaver for the Eagles last year. The guy was brought in to be a backup safety, ends up starting at both safety spots, ends up starting at nickel, and even at boundary corner at one point, and holds up, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, everywhere. How, he played everywhere and played well. So... And that was the guy that sort of fell through the cracks. I mean, I, I loved Devontae Max. I had a second-round grade on it. And I felt like I, I still missed. Like, I should have been even higher on him than I was. Uh, he just came right out of the box and played incredibly well. The only person that played better, I mean, I guess, well, obviously, Coach Cox and maybe, you know, maybe Jenkins. But, I mean, those guys are a rookie. Uh, he was probably the third or fourth best player on their defense. Played as you said, everywhere. If you can find guys like that, and there are guys like that, in the, um, but some of them didn't get invited to the, to the combine uh, because they didn't go to light school or whatever. So the, people always say if, they, if you can play, they'll find you, and there's some truth to that, but not 100% truth to that. If, you, if you're killing it, if you're just you know, setting records and doing whatever, but you're Cody Leonard, right, and you're doing it you know, at the Division II level, and you unfortunately aren't a freak athlete. He's a decent athlete. He's not a freak athlete. They're not excited about you, even though you're you're setting every tackling record the planet's ever seen. He's one of, he's he's tackling like nobody's ever seen before. He's incredibly instinctive. He's basically Chris Borland, but he's playing Division Two, and so he gets you know zero love. You know it, uh, he didn't even manage to win. And of course, Corey Ballantyne deserved it. Uh, so I'm not mad about Corey Ballantyne getting the Ferris Award. But gun to my head, I probably would have gone with Cody Leonard. But I was very happy for Ballantyne. Cody Ballantyne 
did get invited to the combine, did test well, which doesn't surprise yes. me. If you watched his Washburn tape, which I know not a lot of people watch his Washburn tape, but if you watch his Washburn tape, uh, here's a guy who is a very good tackler, also a good tackler, but, but showed ball skills, uh, was the best athlete, frankly, in most of the games he played in. I mean, he's probably only seen another guy who's as good as him maybe four or five times in his entire collegiate career. He's usually the best player on the field. Which is which one, right? If you're a small school guy, if you're looking at a small school guy, you want to do that. Obviously, the best player on the field because they're making such a big jump up. And Cody Valentine, I think Cody Leonard just isn't quite the same athlete as Cody Valentine is, but he's a really great football player. So instinctive, tough, leadership, uh, all the other stuff you want. He's just not a giant. He's probably about 232 pounds. He's probably going to run. He probably runs in the mid to high four sevens. When you're a you know medium sized linebacker, that doesn't set the world on fire. But man, so in, I mean, once again, Zach Thomas was sort of a similar cat, but he was doing it at the SPS level, so at least people gave him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. Uh, some other guys that I love that you know, like I said, seem not to get the same level of love. Well, Capri, Capri Doucette, who started his career at Oklahoma but ended up hitting his career at Hampton, uh, was great everywhere. He was great. Uh, when he was getting snaps at Oklahoma and played very, very well all throughout his career at Hampton. I think in, in this linebacker class, I think he would have been one of the he would have been one of the stories of the combine if he'd been invited. I think he would have tested well and I think he would have probably impressed people that maybe didn't already know about him. I already mentioned Cody Leonard, I you know, just tackling machine, an absolute monster. As, uh, I mean, his tackle numbers look wrong. You know, like he, right? <laughs> but the guy just makes he he. Like I'm saying, I mean, he really, really is clearly a student uh, of the game. He understands where the ball is going. He gets there, and gets there, and gets there continuously. Um, I'm a big fan of, like I said, some of the. There's a small school defensive back named Zerrell Hendrick at Edinburgh State. He's that classic, quote-unquote, Seattle corner that everybody seems to lust after, 6-1 and three-quarters. Um, 189 pounds, my understanding, he's put on some weight and is, it is, you know, getting ready for the NFL training. He's probably up into the, the mid-190s. And that's the other thing. Is these smaller school kids don't get to eat the same way that some of the kids right. with big school. Right. I mean, it's just true. Um, you know, the food is a, as available. There isn't as much of it. It's not available all the time. If you're in Alabama, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I got first-hand experience with that. I worked at a, I worked with the football team at Davenport University where I go to school. Uh, and, ah. too, and, and, and we don't have the, I mean, we just don't have the resources. Like, you, you just, you know, you bre- breakfast isn't like the big, like, you know, omelet bar or anything. You get, like, bagels, peanut butter, and an apple, and that's what you got. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. See that 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 is a very obvious, clear, illustrated difference because you see, you go to you know to Miami or USC or you know whatever, you see, you know, essentially it looks like a really nice hotel. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're walking into it. I was like, wow, you know, there's people who clearly have trained at a very high level. Uh, and I don't just mean the athletes, I mean the nutrition people. These are people who clearly know what they're doing, who are paid very well, I'm assuming. Uh, and, yes, there's all this food, man. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of food. 
And of course, you need a lot of food. You're playing football. You're, you're lifting weights. You're doing all this other stuff. Your your body is tearing itself apart, and you have to put it all back together. So yes, uh, a boiled egg, uh, you know, a, a fruit cup, and uh, and you said a bagel or some peanut butter. I mean, it's not bad for you. Don't get me wrong, but it's a little different. It is. It's a little different from what's going on in some of these places. So that's another thing is you have to account for the fact that what what's this guy going to be when he can actually eat the way that these other guys are eating? You know, some of these guys don't sure. eat like that until they sign with an agent who says, okay, we're going to get you a nutritionist. And now, you know, it's like, oh, wow, this is different. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, um, and these aren't even small school. I mean, that's small school in my mind. But uh, Donnie Lewis at Tulane, I, I don't understand why people don't have him in their top ten uh, amongst corners. At least it, he's well, yeah, everything you want. Uh, he's not huge. He's probably – right around 5'11", but he's not tiny, probably about 187, 188 pounds, about average, really, about the average size NFL corner. Mm -hmm. But hips, feet, tremendous ball skills. Tulane's got something going in corners. I've been watching Tulane for a while, and they have good corners every year, man. Uh, (laughs) They just, I don't know what it is, probably the coaching. They probably have a really good DBs coach. But they've got good corners, seems like, every year. Seems like every year. And then they got one, uh, I, I was a big Perry Nickerson guy last year. Um, mm-hmm. he, I, was, I, was, I bothered everybody about him last year, another two-wing um, corner who's in the NFL. North Texas has two really terrific corners, and I can't understand why most people aren't, don't talk about them. Between Nate Brooks and, and Kimon Hall, those are both NFL guys. Uh, they're both NFL guys. And Nate Brooks is sort of the shorter – thicker of the two, and Kimon is the blazer. Um, Kimon's probably one of the fastest DBs in this class. Once again, terrific hands. He can mirror. He can run the route for the receivers, they say, all that stuff. Uh, your classic man corner. And Nate's a little bit more of a zone guy, though he could probably – I mean, he's played man. He's, he's shown me he can do that, but I think he would really flourish in more of a cover two kind of situation where he gets to muscle the receiver a little bit. Yeah, but they're both guys that I think are going to be really, really good pros, and they just can't seem to get a lot of love. Uh, need, they didn't get invited to the combine either. Kimon Norm Nate but did, and I think I think both of them deserved it. Uh, and there's a bunch of small school corners that I'm a big fan of, like Brian Marine from Bucknell or Ariane Archie from the Toreros of uh, University of San Diego. Yeah, and he's another. He's small. He's you're sort of more of your your you know, we talked earlier about Avante Maddox. He's not quite as tough as Avante, but he's just as good in coverage. <clears throat> Probably not quite the tackler, not quite the tough guy. I mean, Avante, that's what I love about Avante, is despite not being the biggest guy in the world, he came down in the box and rocked people at Pitt. I was like, look at you, you know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, which is, you know, not something you often see from guys who are 180, 88 pounds or whatever, but uh, – there's a lot of really good running backs in this class that I think we mentioned a Zigbo. I'm a huge Ryan Fultz fan um, who's just carved out a great career for himself. Wagner. I like Lexington Thomas, UNLV. I know once again, he's a smaller guy, but I think most of the complaints that people have about this group is that there's not a lot of big play running backs. Well, there's one right there. Lexington Thomas runs away from people. He, yeah. I, I can't wait to see when he finally tests, but he might be, the fastest 
running back, or certainly one of the fastest running backs in this class. I would be shocked if he's not somewhere in the low to mid four fours, and he might be less than that. Well, it would be exciting to see just what what we get out of him. And yeah, he's not he's not a guy I would give twenty five eye back carries to. You know, but no one gets that anymore. I mean, like even even the number one backs nowadays are usually eighteen, nineteen, seventeen, sixteen, maybe twenty twenty two carries at the most kind of guys. It's not you know no one's getting the OJ Simpson touches anymore. Nobody's getting those. 30, 32, 33, you know, Earl Campbell touches, those James Wilder touches, 37, 38 touches. That, no, that's sort of gone now. <laughs> By the way, anyway, so not to say that you don't still have to be reasonably sturdy to play running back in the NFL, but I don't think you have to be 220 pounds. I mean, I think we move no. beyond that. I hope <laughs> we move beyond that. Uh, because the game's not played. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the game was played that way, and you did want John Brockington or whatever, but we're not there anymore. Uh, I, I, I think the success of, uh, of I mean, look at, look at Sproles, right? Darren Sproles carved out an amazing career. Uh, and then even going back to, I mean, I remember when Joe Washington came out of Oklahoma. Once again, I'm a million years old. But Joe Washington was a guy that was, you know, kickoff return, turner, punt returner. And with a third down back with the Colts, and then later goes to Washington and is part of their first uh, Super Bowl team. Well, not first, their second, because uh, their first was back back uh, to Bowl seven against Miami. But the the next run, the run with Joe, the, when Joe Gibbs first gets there, and he would be even a better player now because people really know how to use that type of player nowadays. Like the the you know guys like. Eric Metcalf and Joe Washington are part of that, oh, if only they were born, you know, 25 years later kind of guys, because they had good careers, but they were still, when people thought a running back was, you know, six feet, 220 pounds. So these guys were used as specialists or whatever, but man, nowadays, you know, give, the guy, like, give these guys to Sean Payton or, or Andy Reid, and these guys are getting 14, 15, 16 touches a game, most of them in space, obviously, but every once in a while he'll, you know, hey, let's just give you guys a toss sweep and see what happens. Uh, he knows that with, Ty- with Tyree Kill sometimes. He'll give him a classic old-fashioned toss sweep. And, of course, Hill was a running back in high school who got moved to Oklahoma State and, as you mentioned, got in trouble and, you know, had to move, move from there. Um, I also am excited about this interior defensive line class. I think... Obviously, that's the strength. To me, in my mind, the strength of this draft. When you're in, when you're evaluating interior defensive linemen, where do you start? Like, what's your thing to start with when you start watching the defensive tackle? Whether they be sort of zero technique, you know, nose shade or one technique guys, or whether they be more of your three and even to a certain extent four eye type guys. What do you look for, and and how do you stack or tier them? Uh, you know, I'll admit that that. Interior D line not always my strongest position, um, but you know if I'm if I'm looking at a nose tackle, I, I'm looking for gap integrity. I'm looking for the ability to shed blocks. Uh, you know the the ability to ha- have a good get off despite maybe some athletic limitations, and I don't want him to test horribly. Uh, you know a, a guy like Tim Settle last year I wasn't very excited about because his testing was so bad. Whereas, like, a nose tackle like Dedrin Sainat, who got picked by the Falcons, ended up being a really nice player. 
in his rookie season was pretty athletic for a nose tackle, and also his tape was pretty nice uh, at USF as well. So that's a guy that I liked a little bit more. Um, I, and I try to I try to see like how they were used as well because uh, I, I was a big Deshaun Hand proponent last year. Now obviously I didn't have him like as a first round player, which we now know that he probably should have been. But uh, you know I, I thought it was pretty obvious he was misused, and, and Alabama essentially admitted as much by by saying like they wanted to get their best players on the field, so they played him at you know straight up defensive end because that's still really the only way they could get him on the field consistently, and therefore. You know, he was used incorrectly, and they acknowledged as such. He was clearly more of a three-tech or an interior pass rusher. And, you know, in his rookie season with Detroit, he was used in the way that he should be based on his skill set and turned out to be a great fit for the defense. I had an outstanding season. Uh, I think he was PF, PFF. I think he was their highest defensive interior grade for a rookie ever, including even Aaron Donald which I'm not saying he's Aaron Donald because, you know, there is no other Aaron Donald. But, you know, Hand is an extremely good value in the fourth round just because he wasn't used correctly. So, you know, you have to pay attention to that sort of thing as well. But, I mean, I I might get a little too excited about that type of player because that, that, like, three-tech or the, you know, defensive tackle who can both rush the passer and stop the run, that, like, balanced D-tackle type player is – that's one of my favorite types of players. I mean, I'm huge on Christian Wilkins this year because I, I think he can do it all. A high character guy as well, really smart and, and he's strong. He, he's got good get off. He gap integrity is outstanding. Uh, he's a great run stopper, decent enough pass rusher as well. I think he's you know a, a, a really good player. I have him top ten on my board. Um, so really, I, I'm looking for just the ability to to be consistent, I suppose. And, you know, it, with that type of position, you're not going to have a ton of splash plays. So you want – or not typically, at least, unless you're, you know, Aaron Donald, Quinn and Williams type. Uh, but you, what I look for mostly – and, again, I admit I'm not, you know, I'm no professional analyst on, on this type of thing. So, you know, I'm just doing my best. But what I'm looking for is that consistency and, and the ability to, you know, a, across the entire game, even when you get tired, even when you're facing double teams, that sort of thing just have that gap integrity and be consistent with your assignments and continue to, to cause some sort of disruption, you know, whether you're making the play or not, whether you're racking up the stats or not, just helping the rest of your defense. Yeah, well, you know who else was a fourth rounder, don't you? Speaking of interior pass rusher types. What's up? That's also where Geno Atkins was taken. He was a fourth rounder. Yeah, 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 and Atkins was an incredibly athletic player, but, you know, people had concerns about his size or, you know, about will, will he a tweener? Is he actually going to be able to play 4-3-D tackle? And obviously he has, you know, quashed all of those concerns because he's an outstanding player, probably a top-five defensive tackle in the league still to, to, to this day. Right. And while I don't think there's another Aaron Donald coming, I think that a guy like Ed Arbor has a shot to be that, to be Geno Atkins. Yeah, that's, that's my the guy who tape. His tape is just silly. You know, <laughs> um, uh, he plays a ludicrous number of snaps. First of all, uh, yes. so his conditioning is off the charts for an interior defensive lineman. Uh, he, in terms of his ability to to run those twist stunts, and I mean, he runs the the hoop 
better than most of the quote-unquote true edge or pass rushers or defensive ends or true when he used. He runs he – his ability to bend and twist and woo, hips and feet, I mean, ankle flexion and all that stuff that people get excited about. He's got all that stuff off the charts. And he, watch him do linebacker drills sometimes. I mean, just do it. Just make yourself watch him do linebacker drills sometimes. And he does it better than most of the linebackers in this class. He is, yeah. he is a rare athlete. <laughs> he is a rare athlete. Um, he only did the jumps at the combine, but the numbers were like wide receiver numbers, man. It was crazy. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was crazy. <laughs> so he's going to have a very important pro day. We talked about, you know, the, the importance or lack of thereof of pro days. Now people are going to ask, people are going to ask him about the quote unquote jacket incident, jacket dude or whatever. And once again, I mean, you talked about how you evaluate character things or whatever. That was a, 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 a very petty incident that should have never taken place a, where, I mean, I'm not trying to throw someone under the bus, but it, it's almost like an equipment, you know, I mean, this is some, like, so poor 20-year-old who doesn't even get a check. But if somebody puts that, because people, you know this because you work on a football program. Players don't go around looking for stuff. They don't go rummaging through things. Say, oh, I like this. People put things out for them. Like, you know? Right. So, so if Ed Oliver's wearing something else's wear, it's not – Ed didn't go, you know, digging through a bunch of equipment, you know, digging through – opening a bunch of cases, like, oh, I like this. Someone put this by his locker. And it was exactly. cold. He put this thing on. And then – or, you know, cold to him, you know, cold, cold – I, I live in Chicago. It wasn't cold for me, but it was cold to him. And at first, no one noticed. Like, this wasn't at, at kickoff time. Apparently, no one knows this for a while. That at some point, a rather uh, edgy encounter takes place where, uh, you know, he gets approached by, you know, his, his head coach, who I remember as a feisty, uh, speaking of funny sort of uh, – Coincidence of the I remember when, when uh, Chris Sims goes from Ramapo, New Jersey, down to Texas, and there's this great controversy because, of course, sort of Baker Mayfield, you know, 1.0, the beta version of Baker Mayfield, is already there, right? This scrappy little walk-on who's fought his way up the depth chart. Uh, and so you have Major Applewhite, who's this undersized. Now, the difference is he doesn't have, you know, Baker Mayfield's athletic ability or arm. But similar sort of chippiness um, and, you know, look like a feisty little dude, you know, who for a while fights off this, you know, sort of entitled or whatever you want to term use, you know, big strong-armed kid from the East Coast. And they basically Sims, you know, I mean, he actually, he ultimately graduates um, and then Sims takes over. But, but that chippiness, that sort of getting your face and whatever thing has served him well as a as an undersized, underpowered college quarterback has not always served him well as a coach. And knowing that you're on national television, knowing that you're trying to build a program, uh, even if you somehow thought that the player had done something wrong, which I still to this day don't think you could should construe it that way, but even if somebody got in your head that that's what it was, you should have thought to yourself, okay, I'm at a program that's on sort of on the rise we're trying to get all the positive attention we can get i probably should handle this in the locker room 
at halftime <laughs> as opposed to flipping out on the best player in the history of my program, unless you want to count Andre Ware, I guess, but flipping out on the best player in the history of my program, you know, <laughs> effort probably uh, you know, on national television. But, and then for, for people to, and I get it. I mean, you don't want anyone ever to be seen as going back at their coach, but Ed's a proud, not an angry, but a proud young man. And right. he he was reacting sort of like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what is this about? Um, and what I think what I think it was about is that, you know, obviously uh, sort of like with, 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 with Nick Bosa, he was protecting his future. Now, he, he did later come back and play. He didn't shut it down for the year. But mm. he probably was a little more careful. Once again, Bosa did. Bosa shut it down forever, ever. He's like, I'm done with college. Uh, Ed came back and played. So unless you are going to ask sort of similar questions of Nick Bosa, I mean, not that Nick ever had an incident, but, you know, Nick, clearly that was an injury he probably could have come back from and played. Uh, he, but he, I, I'm not, I'm not, and rightly so, I think he shut it down realizing that people know what they need to know about me as a college player. I'm just going to, you know, take this with me to, uh, and so, yeah, could Ed have maybe pushed himself to play a week or two earlier? Quite possibly. Was Ed completely 100% right not to play before he was 100%? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So for people to somehow make this a, a character thing with Ed Oliver, I don't know. I'm, uh, it's football. Guys yell at each other pretty commonly. Um, and I, I don't know. I, like I said, I think people sort of turned a, a molehill into a mountain on that one. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. No, I totally agree. I, I didn't see really anything wrong with, with what Oliver did. I certainly don't think Oliver has any sort of character concerns. And I mean, he's still going to be a top three player on my board. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. No, no, I'm not worried about that. I, I think that if your coaches are smart about how they use him, and I would move him around, I'd stand him up even at times. I would play him at times on the edge. I would play him right on the nose on some occasions. I'd play him. I'd play him every place. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, he he doesn't. His kind of athlete doesn't come along very often. So he has an interior player. But you look at the success of Geno Atkins, and primarily I'd have him play three-tech, obviously. But there's times where I'd suddenly move him. I would try to find whoever I thought the weak link was on the other yeah. team's offense. And just, Here, go get him, Ed. And guess what? That guy's like, <laughs> yeah. whoever that guy is, <laughs> he's not blocking it, Oliver. Right, right. I mean, just stick him on the weak link on the old line. Yep. And sometimes that guy's a tackle, so Ed's going to play a little DM that day. <laughs> but if that guy's – if they've got a guard who's not – and some guards, I mean, then please, there's some terrific guards in the NFL, but not all of them are. And mm-hmm. thanks to things like injury, sometimes you're trotting out guys that you don't really want to be playing. That guy's about to have a rough film day if I've got an offer to put against your, your third best guard. It's going to be bad. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't I don't have any concerns about him. I mean, I think he and Quinn and Williams are the two players in this whole draft I feel best about, quite frankly. Um I I can't get enough of both of them. Like it was a that was the only problem I had was deciding how to stack the two. You know, Quinn's obviously the more quote unquote NFL body and obviously a very, very good player. Um and then you have that Oliver who is this 
Geno Atkins level athlete. You just don't see that guy very often at, at, at tackle. So, so I sort of fought back, back and forth about those two. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, Bosa is, is, is in the mix. So I don't think he's going to be his brother, which is an unfair comparison, you know, but there are a lot of people to sort of pencil that in like, oh, well, just Joey Bosa again, basically. You know, like that's their traffic. That's their, that's their report on it, basically. Oh, Joey Bosa, just slightly younger or whatever. <laughs> um, I, think, I think Nick's a slightly better pure athlete, but Joey is a better – was a better and is a better football. I mean, was at this point in his career also a better football player. I think he – uh, did better at holding the point when when running plays came his way than Nick does. I think Nick sort of prefers to try to, you know, slip in there and make a play, which sometimes works. But sometimes you, you've got to hold the point sometimes. Sometimes it's like, look, we, I don't need you to try to, you know, get off the block. I need you to gum it up. And I think that Joey was better at that. They're both good with their hands, but I think Joey was a little better. And, yeah, I think Nick's probably a little more flexible and a little – well, he is a little faster. Like, we – we established that recently. Um, I thought even before I had actual testing numbers, I thought he was a little more flexible and a little faster. I, I just think I just think Joey's a little was a little more refined. Uh, maybe because maybe he played more. Um, you know, maybe that's a, a function of of uh, of Nick having shut it down. I don't know. Who knows? But he, just, he just seems like a slightly less ready version of a, you know like I. I really saw a lot, so much polish in Joey Bosa. Like, he just seemed like a guy who's been playing football for a really long time. And with Nick, I don't see quite that same level of development. And I don't know how you see it. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't really doing this all, all that seriously when Joey came out. I, I wasn't going into the scouting as much. I, I you know, really the last two years I've started to do it more seriously. But, uh, you know, I I would say that Nick has maybe slightly more concerns than Joey had coming out. You're right about the polish. Yeah. I mean, Joey just looks like a complete 4-3 defensive end, which he has proven that he is. Uh, yes. You know, I, I, I believe Nick's going to be a very good player. Um, I, I don't necessarily. I don't think he's the best pass rusher in the draft. But nope. I think he's the best edge defender in the draft. Sure, uh, right. I, I I think that he again he's the complete four three end type guy. Uh, whereas I would say that you're, if you're going looking for a sack artist, I'd go with Brian Burns. But uh, yes. you know that's not right. what, that's that's not what you're looking for with Bo. So what you're looking for is a guy who's going to be an outstanding 4-3 defensive end for his entire career, which he absolutely should be. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I I would say he's I, – I currently – I'm a big Quinnen guy. He's pretty clear number one on my board, but I haven't decided what sure. I'm going to do with Bosa and Oliver yet, uh, two and three. Um, but, but the, you know, is Bosa a perfect prospect? No, but is Bosa the best and most complete edge defender in the draft for me? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's right. He's extremely complete. He's though he's not as polished as his brother. He's really polished. You know, I'm like, like comparing some. Let's see, comparisons are rough anytime. But you're comparing someone to Joe Bosa was so polished. You know, like it's it's almost unfair. Like 
that he could look as ready as he was at age 21 was just, you know, nuts that somebody could look that ready to play in the NFL. That's not normal, yeah. right? That's the, he's the exception. That's the, well, you have exceptions. This is for guys like him. He is an exceptional player. Yeah, his brother is a very, very good player who I think will have a very solid career. But, yeah, they just, he's just not quite as well-rounded as his brother was, though I think he's, I guess, a, a better athlete. Um, Montez Sweat is a guy that I had, had seen a lot of Charles Haley. And, well, Chris Charles Haley, I know, is way before your time. Uh, but Charles Haley, uh, Willie McGinnis, uh, Mike Rabel, all guys that play what they call the elephant position in that, in that defense that they still run at times in New England, though New England is so multiple on defense. It's sort of, sort of <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, their defense is whatever it needs to be, basically. But, um, they, you know, the guy that plays that stand up at times, I'm a hand in the dirt, you know, hybrid, whatever you want to call it, and he seems to be really well suited to that. I do think he will sometimes get balled up in the running game, but I can live with that. I mean, I know what he is and I know what he isn't. Uh, I think that Burns is probably a little between the two. Like, he's not – he's a great athlete, but he's not quite Montez Sweat because Montez Sweat is, you know, basically the Randy Moss of, 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 of pass rushers. I mean, his numbers are, don't make any sense. Um, and it's on tape, too. I mean, he's getting off like nobody's business. And despite the fact he plays on an extremely talented defense, he's clearly the best talent, like pure raw talent, on an extremely talented defense at Mississippi State. His, his talent jumps off the, the tape at you, and then the testing confirms that. Like, it lines up like, oh, well, that's why it looks like he's that because he is he is a randy moss version of a deep 200 you know he's up to 262 i guess now he doesn't look like it you know he still looks skinny it's what it tells you i guess we've gotten now with nutrition and and uh and training where a guy can be you know six six and 262 and look skinny i mean still look like he should put on 20 pounds and probably could fairly easily oh uh, which is just silly to but, yeah, my comparison has long been Charles Haley for him. Uh, Charles Haley was a very similar, I mean, physically a very similar athlete. Uh, the question I only, the question I have is, um, will people know what to do with him? I mean, I think, the, I think people will. Uh, but I, there are people, I think, could, or teams, I think, that might try to make him something that he isn't. But I think if you, if you stay away from that, if you stay away from trying to make him something that he isn't, uh, you'll be very happy with Montez Sweat. Where, where are you on him? Uh, I certainly think that he has some work to do in terms of technique. He can be a little stiff coming off the edge. Yep. Um, but he's obviously preposterously athletic, and there's so much you can mold there with, with Sweat. Um, I don't know if he's a guy I want the Lions to look at at eight, I have him more as like a mid to late first round guy right now, uh, just because I, I do think that that he is a little bit of a project. I mean, he, obviously he's he's a guy who can come in as a situational pass rusher year one and be productive, but I, I think he's he's gonna need to be in a situation where he can learn and, and grow as he as he 
works his way into more playing time. And uh, with the Lions not really having a ton of depth at that position, you know, no, I, not would look for, I would look for uh, more more of a um, – if you're looking for, like, a stand-up pass rusher, I'd look for somebody with more polish who can step in and contribute more on day one. You know, I we, we mentioned Burns. I really want the Lions to draft Brian Burns if he's there at eight. Yeah, it's interesting, the comparison between the two. Uh, they're both super athletic. I think Burns is tougher. I think Burns is a little smarter. And obviously Burns is more polished. Uh, so it comes. It does come down to, you know, sort of looking at the, the growth stock versus the blue chip stock that's going to give you dividends you know, right away. That would be actually an interesting sort of draft storyline is those two players who are similar in a lot of ways that have a couple of fairly distinct differences. Mm-hmm. Um, Burns is a guy who I think will either be truly amazing or will be a guy who will struggle with injuries and never quite be what you wanted him to be. And he, it's not like he had a billion injuries, but he, the injuries he had were significant. Um, he had a very scary injury, you know, uh, what's it scary? It was not scary as it used to be, but it was a significant injury. I got to leave it at that. And he came back from it. That's the most important thing. It's not like, you know, he ended his career, you know, with a bunch of pins and, you know, needles and whatever and sewing on him and all that stuff. I mean, he, he showed he came back and obviously tested like a guy who, you know, who could come all the way back 100%. Uh, mm-hmm. But once you've had certain things done, once things have been done to you, you're never really 100%. But I still think he'll be, you know, I think he'll have a, a good, solid career. And if he can avoid re-injuring, because that's always the fear. You know, if, you know, if a guy comes back 100%, just hope he doesn't have a, a, a reoccurrence of that injury or a similar injury to the same part of the body. Uh, but, yes. He's, his tape is really good. Uh, I would say that if you're just going just on pure tape grade, you'd almost have to go burn. Uh, but as we just pointed out, Montez Sweat is it, the right coach. I mean, you give him to the right coach. Somebody really knows. I mean, I keep thinking of a guy like Rod Marinelli could do with Montez Sweat. Yikes. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? I mean, if he ended up with somebody with that level of coaching acumen and intensity, he could be, by the time, by his second year in the league, he could be the guy leading the league in sacks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, why um, did you get a player of that caliber, who, or that caliber athletically, who's also got, like, the polish on tape? I mean, that's when you get Miles Garrett, and Miles Garrett was the most yeah. obvious number one overall pick since Andrew Luck. So... I, right. you know, you're not going to get that really ever. I mean, he, he's a unicorn completely, but Sweat fits that athletic profile of the guy you want coming off the edge. So if you can work with him, he's obviously, you know, and improve the, the little things that he's uh, insufficient in at this moment. Um, he's got sky high potential and he could easily be a guy who gives you, you know, 13 to 15 sacks every season. Uh, it, but, you know, if he doesn't get the right development, then he could be another athletic freak who struggled to live up to his billing. Right, right. And that is a natural segue to Rashawn Gary. 
the number one player in the country coming out of high school. All I heard was he's going to be a generational player. I've been hearing this since he was probably 15, 16 years old. Obviously, he never quite became that level of player in his college career. Uh, there are still people who believe it's going, the light will come on, as they say, at the next level. Where are you on Rashawn Gary, and what things would you need to see, you know, um, to either believe more in him, or, or what is it you're looking for, I guess, even with him? I mean, obviously the production wasn't where you want it for a guy who's playing off the edge, especially a guy who's such a high-level talent and, uh, and you know, high-level high athletic specimen. Uh, I have Gary as an early second-round player. I, I feel like a, a man with his size, strength, and athleticism uh, playing on the defensive line. I feel like any coach worth their salt in the NFL can get at least some sort of production out of him. But, you know, the the, the tape is concerning. I mean, it completely disappears at times. You, you try to watch him and you kind of wonder what, what you're watching because there's nothing there. Uh, and I don't really think it's necessarily an effort concern either. He just kind of gets stuck. And I, yeah. I, he, needs, he needs a lot of work in terms of technique. He needs a lot of work in terms of, like, hand usage. He is a little bit of a tweener right now because he's not really – he doesn't really play strong enough to play inside right now, but obviously he's kind of big and lumbering off the edge. Um, he's got the athleticism to play off the edge, and I think his best role is going to be like a 4-3 defensive end, um, maybe in like a Brandon Graham type role. But, uh, I, I mean, he's he's a tough eval. He really is. And I, I guess I, I understand where people are coming from who say like, you know, he may he wasn't used in a proper role and that sort of thing, and that can explain a little bit of the product of the lack of production away. But I mean, this isn't a guy who was getting to like triple teamed all the time like Ed Oliver was, and Oliver might not have had the production that you wanted out of a guy that talented, but he's so clearly the best player on Houston's defense that he's like the main focus by a bunch. Whereas with Michigan, you know, you had to focus on Winovich and Bush and Uche and Long and Kinnell and Hig or uh, not. Um, Hudson. So I mean, you've got all these these good players that are you know going to play at the next level, uh, and you can't focus that attention strictly on Gary. But yet he's still not giving you the production you want out of such a touted player. And right. so I, I feel like you know this this is the guy who the NFL loves because of his potential. But I think that you have to consider the fact that he's had this potential the whole time and hasn't really lived up to it yet. I don't really see a Pro Bowl level player here, but I see a guy who can definitely contribute and, and in the right hands could become a really a really nice piece for somebody. Right. Well, my thought is once again, if you sort of take the same approach of we're going to look for the weak link and put him on whoever that guy is, here's my problem. I mean, I think that's probably what may end up happening with him too. But with that Oliver, when he ever got a guy who wasn't able to handle him, he killed that guy. You know what I mean? I didn't right. know from a Sean Gary. Where's the game where he takes over the game? Someone find me that game. Yeah. Because a rare athlete, and he's a rare athlete for his size, right? I mean, a guy with, what, with all the stuff that he's been given by God or whatever you believe, genetics, whatever, should have at least a game or two where he's unstoppable, right? 
where you just right. see him. You can't, even if you're, look, you can't avoid seeing him, where he's in the backfield three plays in a row blowing it up, where he's needing a, a, a zone read at the mesh, where he's, you know, um, just destroying everything, where he's knocking down um, passes in the backfield, where he's running down a screenplay from the other side of the field. Because one of the – somebody – I remember early in his career, somebody said he's going to be a, a taller, you know, a longer version of Indomitian Sue. And the, the problem I have with that is I watched Indomitian Sue a lot. And there's games, and, of course, the game that obviously people keep going back to is that Big 12 championship game where he literally took the game over. He just took the game over. Uh, he blocked what would have been a game-winning field goal. He sacked Colt McCoy like six, six five and a half, some of the crazy number of times. Like he, it, from the interior, you know, like all these excuses people made for Rashad Gary. And they were double and triple teaming at Dominican because they knew he was a Dominican too. You know, they weren't stupid. And he just refused to stay blocked. That's my biggest thing with pass rushers. I don't care if they're interior or exterior. Do you refuse to stay blocked? Yeah. Rashawn Gary, and I'm not saying he was satisfied with being blocked. I'm not trying to put it that way, but he either didn't seem to know how to deal with being blocked at times, which I know the coaches at Michigan are good coaches. So I know they're telling him, hey, don't attack a whole man, attack half a man, you know, uh, long arm. I know because I see guys, other guys on the team using these techniques. It's, they're not keeping the techniques away from him, right? They're not, not teaching him the same things they're teaching him at all, I, I assume, right? So if yeah, everyone's yeah. being told. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's, it is frustrating to see because, I mean, you know he's getting at least competent coaching, probably good coaching. He, he's got players around him that should make his life easier. And you see plays every now and then that you're like, well, there's Rashawn Gary. But it's never it's it's never the consistent like throughout the game tape. I mean, team, good teams were able to face him out. I mean, he wasn't particularly effective against Ohio State. He wasn't particularly effective against Michigan State, and that, Michigan nope. State didn't even have a good offensive line this year, like at all. And they just nope. schemed him out of the game. So yep, it, it's it's difficult to to see that and then say well. And then see, you know, like NFL types and, and big-time pundits saying, like, he's a top-five player, and you see the disconnect there. It's like, this is why draft Twitter's lower on this guy, because when you watch him, he doesn't look anything like a top-five player at all. And I understand the athleticism and the pedigree are there, which is why I have him as a second-round player. But that's, as, that's, the best I can, that's the best I can do. I mean, and you're being, you're being generous, quite frankly, because if his name was Rashawn Gary, but the tape was exactly the same, even if the testing was the same, but he was playing in the MAC, right? He's producing he's like he's producing. You couldn't talk to these people into taking him in the third round. Forget the second. Yeah, so he, he, it's mostly name recognition, frankly, that's keeping him that high. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, there's... A, if you look at the fact of the fact of the matter, if if you remove if you remove schools, there's a guy playing about eight miles away from Rashawn Gary who is a little smaller and similarly athletic with huge production yep. stats and Max Crosby. 
thank you, thank you. Like, if you're telling me I can get that guy in the third, but you want me to try to take Rashawn Gary in the top ten, I'm going to yeah. say, you know what, I'm going to let someone else unlock the potential of Rashawn Gary. I'm going to take my little Max Crosby in the mid-third and and work with him. Thank you very much. And, exactly. and pay, him, pay him half as much while we're at it. I mean, so, you know, if you turn him into a great player, I will tip my hat to you. That, that, I will say that. You did it. Well done. If he becomes a, 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 a consistent, all-pro-level player, future Hall of Famer, I will simply say, well done, sir. You did something I didn't think could be done. And that will happen. Uh, I want to touch on the tight end class also because that's the other thing. People are, even though, obviously, Donald Parham being invited to the prom combine, we all already cried in their beer about that. But the guys that did get invited to the combine lit it up. Uh, this is a tremendous tight end group. Uh, teams, if you're a team that needs a tight end, if you don't find one this year, you have no one but yourself to blame. There are tight ends of every sort to be had. Little tight ends, big tight ends, fast tight ends, tight ends who can still block. There's a couple of those even. Um, Guys who can, you know, really catch the ball. Guys who are really good after the catch. Guys who aren't great after the catch, but are really good in the red zone. But there's, there's a tight end for everyone. Uh, tell me about how you see the tight end group, and and do you have any particular favorites? Uh, I mean, I've got some some pet players in this tight end group, I suppose, uh, or maybe some guys I'm a little higher on than many, but. Uh, you know, I got the Iowa guys one too. Uh, I have Hawkinson just a tiny bit ahead of Fant, just because they're both extremely athletic. Uh, Fant a little right. bit more athletic, but I think uh, Hawkinson is pretty clearly superior blocker, and so I'll give him a slight nod. Um, I have Jay Sternberger third. I think he's an outstanding receiver, uh, extremely productive at Texas A&M. Uh, you know, a guy who's also athletic, who is you know really nice hands, good route runner. I feel like he's going to be a guy who can get consistently open at the next level. Um, Irv Smith's a nice player, uh, not not as athletic as, as maybe we had hoped, but kind of that Delaney Walker move tight end. Maybe you could play him a little ace back type guy. Um, some of the smaller school guys I like, uh, obviously Parham. Uh, I like Kahale Waring out of San Diego State. Really athletic, good blocker, a lot of potential there. Um, guy I would take early on day three. Another guy I take early on day three is Foster Moreau. I don't think he was used very well at LSU. Uh, another guy who's athletic, he blocks really hard, needs to work on his technique with blocking because sometimes he just kind of goes crazy. But yeah, dude's effort is like 18 out of 10. But, I mean, sometimes he's, he's a little bit, you know, too insane. But uh, And then uh, a guy that I don't, think really gets enough press and I'm not saying that I would take this guy early or anything but I think he's draftable and I really don't know why he's uh nobody's talking about him. Logan Parker out of southern Utah uh okay. I, I've, liked yeah, him. Yeah. I, I've liked him since early in the season and I I just I haven't really understood why he's just kind of fallen by the wayside I guess just because the tight end group is very deep but I mean uh, I, I think he's just as like I would take Logan Parker before I take Zach Gentry so, I mean, I I don't, you know, I, I think you can get a quality, like, a quality tight end, too, even 
in the sixth, seventh round pretty pretty comfortably in this draft. I mean, I didn't even mention guys like Elise Mack, who tested really well at the Combine, uh, guys like Keenan Brown, who it doesn't really have the production but has the talent. I started at Oklahoma State, I believe, transferred to Texas State. Um, uh, guys like... Uh, and then you've got your blocking specialists. I mean, Trevon Wesco, great blocker. Uh, Kendall Blanton didn't test athletically very well, but he's an outstanding blocker. I would take him in the seventh round and just plug him in as your tight end three and just have him run people over, essentially. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> I mean, I guess really the only guy I was disappointed in is, is Isaac Nauta, just because his combine was so bad. And, I mean, the guys with... Tight ends with a relative athletic score under two are essentially never good. Um, I, right. I think the the only tight end who had anywhere near that bad of a of an RAS that's found success in the league recently is Jack Doyle, and uh, I I don't really think Nada is quite that good. So you know he's really fallen from a potential day two guy to like late day three for me because you're really taking a flyer and hoping that you can pull something out of him that is essentially historically not possible, but uh, no, I mean, I, I, I really like this tight end group, especially the depth. I mean, I don't, I don't have, I have two first round grades and two second round grades, but then after that, I mean, I have in the next three rounds, I think oh, a dozen guys that, that I have in that range. I mean, didn't talk about Dax Raymond, who's a solid player. Uh, right. I mean, there's just, a lot. Dawson Knox is a good player. I have a third round grade on him. Uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of guys here who are going to be solid, like low end tight end ones or really high end tight end twos. And there's always a place for that. I mean, teams teams are going to take these guys on day three, and they're going to have consistent contributors. And it's going to be a worthwhile pick. It's not going to be a pick that everybody talks about. It's not going to be sexy, but it's going to be productive. It's going to fill a need. Right. And with all those guys you named, you didn't name two of my favorites, who are uh, Josh Oliver and Caleb Wilson. So oh, I love you Wilson. Just, I love Wilson. I can't <laughs> believe I forgot him. Yeah, I, I'm big on Josh Oliver. He doesn't seem to get as much love as – I mean, some people keep talking about Isaac Nada. It's like the guy you think Isaac Nada was, that's who Josh Oliver is. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but I guess maybe it's because he went to San Jose State. For whatever reason, I don't hear – he doesn't even get as much love as he should get, but he's a terrific player. Uh, but, yeah, super deep. And, you know, there's some small school tight ends. Uh, it's a bunch of tight ends. There's, there's a bunch of tight ends. Like I said, if you can't find a tight end this year, you don't know what you're, you're – you, you have no one to blame but yourself. There's a tight end for everyone. Um, before we close it out, I guess we have to talk quarterbacks, right? Um, yeah. And there's a, there are quarterbacks in this class not – named Tyler. So we can touch on any of the there are? Tyler. Apparently, I thought there was only one. There, there's only one big, guy big, player, though, I thought. Big, big is true, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that people love a storyline and all that other stuff, and, you know, and his story is a cool story and blah, 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 but I'm almost starting to get Kyler fatigue at this point. I would like to spend some time talking about quarterbacks not named Kyler. And I'm, I'm, I love the kid. Don't get me wrong, but oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last – the only thing I'm going to be of worse was, I mean, you, were, you weren't you were around, I guess, for, for the Tim Tebow uh, 
wars or whatever, but Tim Tebow got rammed out of our throats in a way, my friend, that this was not, uh, first of all, um, not fair to him even. I mean, the hype didn't do him any good either, but it was insanity. It was, it was just ridiculous. Um, you couldn't escape him. He was everywhere. I, I, I found out things about that young man I had no reason to know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, are, <laughs> there, are, there are other quarterbacks, believe it or not, some of whom will play quarterback in the NFL, some of whom will play quarterback well and for a long time. Now, it is not one of the classes that will go down as one of the great classes, but, and I think most of the guys from here are backups. But there's a place for that. A lot of teams could use a better backup than they have. As you, if you've scoured the rosters of NFL teams, there are, well, as you know, 32 teams. Not all 32 have a backup that's NFL quality. I'll put it that way. There's a couple of guys in the AAF who are better than some of the guys who are playing backup in the NFL. And I won't name oh, any names, me. but I think you can play. I'm a, Lions, I'm, a, I'm a Lions fan. We had Matt Castle last year. That almost anything would be an improvement over Matt Castle at this point. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and of course, you know, obviously Miami has a couple of third string quarterbacks that have neither a second nor a first string quarterback at this point. So, um, I'll start with. I guess, I mean, he's still my quarterback one, quite frankly, but he's most people's quarterback two, I guess, in Dwayne Haskins. And I wish he had played at least one more year, quite frankly. Uh, I think, I know it's sort of a hot thing in the streets for guys to declare as soon as possible nowadays. I just think there's times when it ends up slowing you down when you do get to the next level because, frankly, NFL coaches, people talk about when he gets to NFL coaching, blah, blah. People understand the NFL coaches are not, high school coaches, they're not college coaches. They're NFL coaches, which means they're worried mostly about implementing the game plan that allowed them to beat Bill Belichick, right? They're not thinking, i got to teach you this, 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 and this. I mean, if you're a young quarterback or a young whatever that work with you, don't get me wrong, but basic skills, that's not what NFL coaches excel at. So when people say, oh, when he gets NFL coaching, hey, that's not for the super raw guy. The super raw guy isn't the guy that the NFL coaches excel at utilizing these <laughs> once again not high school it's not college their their time is really compressed it's more time than college but it's more intensified like if they don't have time to spend a lot of time on oh you're doing this wrong let's fix that they'll say you're doing this wrong go fix it <laughs> now line up over here and we got to do this because we're installing this stupid complex scheme that we have Sometimes more complex than necessary, and once again, yeah, that's for another show, I guess. Um, if you ever see an NFL playbook and you talk to the guys, like, well, hey, how many plays in your playbook do you actually run? Oh, maybe 15, 20 percent. Oh, okay, awesome. Thank <laughs> okay, you very much. So, awesome. Okay, so you have 220 passing plays. Why? Why do you have yeah. 220 passing plays? <laughs> what the heck is that about? <laughs> you, in a whole season, you will run less than half of the plays you have. Hilariousness. But um, quarterbacks. Okay, so I think it has to be compared to all kinds of people, from Jameis Winston to Ben Roethlisberger to I think Eli Manning was invoked by somebody as well. 
Um, I'm not wild about any of those comparisons, but whatever. Uh, what he is is he is a classic drop-back pocket passer. He is a guy whose strengths are decision-making and accuracy. He has an above-average, though not elite arm. And, yeah, he's a pretty much non-athlete, um, yep. which is okay. I mean, that's the one position other than kicker where it doesn't really matter that much uh, if you can really move or jump or run or any of that stuff as long as you are a great decision-maker who's an accurate passer. Um, he also had to overcome some adversity in that, you know, I heard a lot of Tate Martell talk not all that long ago, and there were some people handing his job to Tate Martell, who, of course, is this five-star recruit that I was talking about. But he fought off the challenge, and now Tate Martell is transferred, uh, though maybe he should have hung around because, or whatever, Justin Fields, I guess, is going to be the next, you know, uh, flavor of the month there. But tell me, where are you on Dwayne Haskins, and what do you feel are his strengths, weaknesses, and, and the like? Uh, he's my QB2 right now, but I'm not really that high on him, uh, not really high on this QB class at all, particularly, but um, I have Haskins as a second-round player. Uh, you're right, his strength, his main strength for me is his accuracy, especially in the short and intermediate game. Uh, yeah, very, very solid that way. Uh, he's got good touch on his ball usually as well. Um, the main concerns I have with him are uh, off-script, he was not good um he was abysmal early in the season and improved from abysmal to just like straight up bad uh near the end of the year um with pressure in his face the footwork to escape is is lethargic it's i mean and again it's not like a concern with him like not working at it it's just that he doesn't i don't know if he has it and uh and his deep ball is not it's not pretty right now i mean he's he's Underthrow, overthrow, left, right—it's it's the inconsistent thing where his miss is everywhere. He doesn't kind of like when a golfer uh, is playing playing army golf, left, right, left, right, and you don't have a consistent yeah. miss, so you can't fix it. That that's right. right. That's the problem I have with his deep ball right now is that it misses everywhere. It's not just like oh he's underthrowing it; he's got to use his legs more. I, and and that's the sort of thing where I, I feel like he's almost going to be pigeonholed into being like a West coast quarterback. And you can have success in that, in that type of scheme in the NFL. But I don't know if he has the ceiling to be really a first round quarterback and be like a top, a top 10 quarterback in the NFL. I mean, I feel like he kind of tops out as like an average to slightly above average starter. Right. And let me just say that if it were not this particular quarterback class, I mean, that's why he declared, maybe because he thought this was his best opportunity to get drafted this highly. Uh, he would probably be further down, you know, in a quote-unquote normal class. And here's what I will say. I think Kyler is a more natural thrower than he is. I think that's yes. the thing that makes Kyler so special, natural thrower. He's a guy that, you know, is just, he probably could be good at, probably good at darts, obviously good at baseball. Mm-hmm. He's not good at anything that involves hand-eye coordination. He's got – that's where he's, what he's got over Haskins. Uh, I think what Haskins has that Kyler doesn't have or maybe doesn't, doesn't, hasn't had to have as often is his ability to do certain things pre and at snap 
And once again, Kyler doesn't maybe it doesn't have to or hasn't had to. Uh, his offense is really, really usually just destroying people to the point where they don't have to do a lot. They don't have to hide their intentions. They don't have to read a lot of things. They're forcing things. They're dictating to the defense maybe in a way that they don't have to react to certain things. But that won't that dog won't hunt as much in the NFL. So I give the sure. mental edge to Haskins. I give the physical edge to Kyler. And I generally err on the side of mental with quarterbacks because I think that's the thing that usually causes quarterbacks to wash up more often than, than anything physical. Um, J.P. Rothman, as you just heard recently, their team's sort of buzzing about how he's with the pro day. I mean, think about that, right? Um, so you're a 38-year-old coach now, huh? You uh, yeah. want to come work out for us? Because the physical stuff, I mean, let's be honest, if Brett Favre showed up at a workout right now, he would work out better than almost all the quarterbacks in this quarterback class. The man is 40. No, not 40. Anything. He's 50, sorry. The man is 50. He's a 50-year-old man. But he would work out better than most of the quarterbacks in this quarterback class. The physical stuff, like throwing the football stuff, that's the stuff that, that guys have. Like, you have that. You, God gave you that for the most part. I worry more about the stuff that you have to work for. And that's the thing that Haskins has. And I think, and once again, I mean, I hate to start bringing up Tom Brady again, but I feel like, because I bet that's what really separates the guys that hang around is the mental stuff more often than physical. And I guess there's a certain modicum of physical talent. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you can't be, you know, if you're Tim Mattei or, or Kellen Moore, you're going to hang around a few years as a backup and then become a really good coach. Uh, right. Or Steve Dorsey. But he's not that. He's above that level. I think right. the things that you're worried about are things that he'll never get be great at, but I think he'll get good enough at them that he'll make it. And then with Kyler, I think, once again, coaching really matters with him. Once again, the guy that hasn't played a lot of football, was playing two sports. I mean, all the things that sort of scared. I don't get scared about the things like people were freaked out about, like height you know, like, or whatever. I was more worried about the, okay, well, here's the good news. Since he's never really worked at football all the time before, conceivably he could have a lot of room to grow there, but he's also making up a lot of, of lost ground rather late in the, in the game. Uh, you don't have a lot of time. Well, maybe you don't. I mean, you don't know how, how bad your team is or how good your team is, whatever it is. I mean, maybe he goes to a team where he does have to be tossed out there right away. That's what worries me about the whole first overall talk. Yikes. I mean, <laughs> um, it's hard to sit the guy you took first overall. It, it's been a long time since somebody's gotten a quarterback first overall and then let him actually marinate. They tend to just toss those kids out nowadays. And I think that's probably – I don't think he'll bust, but I think that's the recipe for him not being as good as he could be is if you say, okay, you're our day one guy, go get him, Tiger. Um, I do worry about that, especially on a bad team. I mean, that's, that's true for any quarterback. I mean, you go to a bad team and they, they rush you out there. That's a, that's a recipe for things perhaps not going well <clears throat> because your offensive line probably isn't awesome. The last I checked, the Cardinals' offensive line wasn't great. Nope, it's really bad. That's what I thought. And people say, oh, well, Kyler will be able to run around. And, well, I mean, you can do that sometimes. But Von Miller eventually catches up with you. <laughs> yep, no doubt. I mean, I've got, I, I've got confirmation of that. 
that you don't escape forever. I don't care if you're Robert Griffin III. I don't care if you're, if you're Lamar. I mean, there's nobody. There's never been a quarterback athletic enough that he never got caught. <laughs> you know, like there's, that's, there's the NFL. There's nobody. You're never going to get – you can't build your career around getting away from those guys forever. There's going to, there's right. One of them is going to get you, and probably more than one, especially when you're a rookie and you are struggling to read defenses. Because that's the other thing is I don't think that's Kyler's strength yet. That's where I give Haskins the edge. I think that both will need some time to cook. I hope both of them get it because I know lately people are trying to play young quarterbacks earlier and earlier. And in some classes, you can get away with that. With Andrew Luck, you can get away with that. With Russell Wilson, yeah, you can get away with that. Even with Baker, who played a gazillion games in college, you can get away with that. I don't think you can get away with that, these two guys. I hope the teams that get them see them more, I won't say projects, but they're project adjacent. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're both one-year dudes, basically. And they're closer to Trubisky than they are to Russell Wilson, even in terms of that part of it. You know, they, in that there's going to be some good days and some bad days, and they're going to need some help and to be brought along a little more gradually than Russell Wilson or Andrew Luck or somebody who <laughs> you can simply just toss out there day one and say, go get them back. I think those guys are the exception. And once again, we'll see how it plays out. But I, I hope that they're a little more measured in their approach to playing these guys, which I know is hard. Okay, so most people have – the first two guys we talked about, either one or two. And then things sometimes get interesting with QB3, but most people have Drew Locke. Are you also like most people, or are you – where are you with that? No, not at all. Uh, I actually have Drew Locke at quarterback eight, and I really don't like him as a prospect whatsoever. Um, he's not consistently accurate. He's nope. not a particularly good decision maker. Uh, nope. He works a mess fades away from his throws all the time for no reason, rolls into pressure instead of away from pressure. And he gets panicky <laughs> yeah. in the pocket. Uh, pretty much the only things going for him are tall, throws a nice deep ball. That's all you have. And decent That's athletic. It? Right. So I, I have no <laughs> idea why you wouldn't take a guy like Brett Rippon over Drew Locke. Because Rippon is outstandingly accurate, throws the ball with zip, Really smart, good decision maker. Does he have a, a great downfield arm? No. Is he athletic? Not at all. Uh, and he's, he's not big. You know, he, he's not he's not going to have those physical abilities that are going to be able to make him a top level quarterback. But I mean, Brett Rippon's going to be at worst a really good backup, and at best yep. he's going to be like a mid level starter. So, I mean, that his ceiling isn't really much lower, if at all, than Locke's, and its floor is massively higher. I, I just I, – I always use the term the great white hope for tall, yeah. white tall white quarterbacks who aren't very yeah. good, but people like to think they are. Uh, yes. And Locke is that guy in this draft. He is that guy in this draft. There are some people who have Drew Locke at QB1. God bless him. Um, uh, I, they exist, man. I'm not making it up. I, 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 yeah, whatever. Um, 
So the latest thing I've heard people do is compare him to, to uh, Jay Cutler, which is not entirely unfair, but it's somewhat inaccurate. First of all, Cutler had to really carry a – what did we say about the Allen Iverson exercise we performed earlier? I, there were a couple of players on that team, but, man, when you go back and look uh, at that roster, Earl Bennett hung around the league for a while. There was a uh, Chris Williams, was that the name of that tackle that got way overdrafted from his, from his team and was out of the league in like three or four years. Um, and there was like one other guy on that offense who hung around the league for a couple of years, but that was not a great team. And he got them to seven wins one year, I think, which doesn't sound like a lot. You realize, one, he's in the SEC, and two, you go back and look at that roster. It's not, it's not good. So for the most part, uh, so yes, it's it's not an entirely fair comparison for a couple reasons. Gulak has more help. People complain about his supporting cast. It beats the living daylights out of Cutler's supporting cast. First of all, yeah. uh, and as you said, even though he's a pretty good athlete, he seems to not seem to know what to do with his athletic ability. Um, it seems to get him into trouble as opposed to getting him out of trouble. Right. I, I, I'm with you a lot on Rippin. A guy who I see is sort of similar to Rippin, but a little more athletic, and I think has a slightly strong arm is Marcus McMarion, who nobody but me likes for whatever reason. And I'm fine with that. But uh, but he's once again similar to your guy Rippin, but I think, like I said, a little more athletic ability and a slightly stronger arm. And a guy who was sort of a uh, a mess, frankly, early in his career at Oregon State. Uh, Coach Tedford got a hold of him and, you know, that, did that Tedford magic. And he's a, once again, a guy who's probably a high-level backup to, you know, okay starter. But in this class, in this class, that's probably a good thing. I mean, for what most of these, I mean, when I see people trying to push Daniel Jones into the first round, I'm not trying to do it with Marcus Marion. As much as I like him, I don't think he's a first-rounder or even a third-rounder. He's a fourth-rounder. But I think he's better than most of the other quarterbacks in this class. I'm with you on Rippin. I think there's, those two are sort of similar. I just give McMarion a slightly better, slightly higher ceiling. Um, I, like Brett, I like Brett Stockstill more than I like Daniel Jones. I, I don't get the Daniel Jones thing one iota. I don't get it at all. I just I don't get it. <laughs> I don't, I've tried. I, I promise you I've tried. I keep hearing all these things like, let me go look again. Let me, let, me, let me give him another chance. Here's what I have seen. He's physically tough. Um, he, he's, you know, he's not afraid to, 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 to take a hit. Uh, he's a decent athlete, better than these. He's an above-average athlete at the position. Yep. Um, but you complained about Dwayne Haskins' deep ball. I mean, oh, yeah. Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. Dwayne Haskins is Josh Allen on the deep ball as compared to Daniel Jones. If Daniel yeah. Jones didn't play at Duke, at one six foot five, and as you said, white, I'll, since you brought it up, if he if he was not six foot five, if, if he didn't go any of the things, or he wasn't white, or he wasn't at Duke, or any of, the, any of those things away, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just think that people talk themselves into Daniel Jones. I can't exactly. Maybe it's just because they they can't find other people to like. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. But this is a guy that, I mean, to me, Daniel Jones is a mid-day three guy that you're taking a flyer on as a sort of developmental project type. 
I don't, I don't understand how you could look at him and then say, yeah, I'm taking this kid in the first. In fact, I can't talk myself into him in the second. I can't talk myself into the third. I, I, mid-fifth, maybe. Uh, but there's small school quarterbacks who I would put above him. Brant Kramer, I think, is better than him. Uh, strongly believe it, but Tyler Swart, who most people haven't even heard of, but big, strong kid with a big old arm. Um, guns, he is a gunslinger. Like, people throw the term around for guys that doesn't apply to. It actually applies to Tyler. He's, he needs to probably calm it down sometimes, but hyper-aggressive mentality, but partially because he's at, you know, uh, Missouri Science and technology or whatever, uh, mining, sorry, mining and technology, uh, you know, in an RMAC school in, in D2, but the kid's got a massive arm and a big, strong kid, you know. Uh, but I, I, the more I watched of him, the more I thought, man, if he only were at a bigger school, because he's all the things that you like about Drew Locke, but handles pressure better and doesn't create problems for himself. Uh, you know, he may occasionally make mistakes, but at least the mistakes are not ones of, as you said, rolling into pressure like that. And, and thank you for, I mean, you nailed it. Uh, it doesn't do that. But I, I'm more excited about him. I'm more excited about uh, I mean, Devlin I'd Hodges take, from Stanford and some of these other guys. I, I would take, I mean, if you're, I have Jones as a fourth-round player right now. I mean, he's he's you're right. He's tough. He's he's decently accurate. He's very smart. He's a good athlete. Good mechanics. But I mean, ceiling's pretty low. Arm strength very low. There. Uh, nope. So you know he he's a he's a good backup, but nothing else. I mean, if you're trying to to take a guy who's gonna you know fill a spot for you and and you know fill out your roster, then Jones in the in the fourth round is fine with me. But I mean, I would take a guy like Lamar Reynard ahead of him if you're trying to look for a guy who could potentially develop into a starter. Sure, right. Amir Hall has more potential. There's a bunch of quarterbacks yep. with more potential than Daniel Jones. A lot of quarterbacks. Like I said, my guy Marcus Marion has more potential. Ter- than Terry Christian. Yeah. Terry Christian has more. There's a lot of quarterbacks with more potential than Daniel Jones. They just don't have, once again, he's mentioned pedigree. I, I have a beautiful term to use. Um, oh, look, there's Coach Cutcliffe. You know, he worked with the Peyton Mannings and the Eli Manning, and the, which is cool and everything, but it's not genetics. Like, he can't pass it along <laughs> to Daniel Jones. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's like with Stanford. I mean, Stanford, now, they do have one that I really like, and J.J. J- J- Costello now, but people yeah. would, what was it, Kevin, um, what's his name that people started to try to get excited about? Kevin uh, Hogan? At Stanford, yeah. Um, yeah, Kevin Hogan. Yes, yes. As if the fact that he played at the same place as Andrew Luck somehow passed along. So, no, no, no. It's still Kevin Hogan. Like, that didn't help him. It, that he's, and that's kind of what we're talking about, only even weaker armed. We're talking about Daniel Jones. Like, weaker armed Kevin Hogan doesn't excite me. No. I, I can't talk myself into that. And once again, you're being generous in my mind with, with giving him a fourth round grade. I, I, I can think of guys I would take over him there just like I said, but the chance they might become something. I mean, the only good thing with Daniel Jones is you do know what you have, right? You, right. you know exactly what you have. Um, his ceiling and his floor are about an inch and a half apart, though. 
Yeah, you could. You you wouldn't be able to fit a piece of paper in between them. Nope. They're the ceiling floor are sit in the same place. So the good news is that you shouldn't be disappointed. I guess right. for, for for the bright side of it, you should. Not, if you are disappointed, it's on you because he didn't do fault. anything yeah. to suggest there's something more there. <clears throat> um, a, a couple more guys that we can hit on, and then we, we can close that. I really think that in a quarterback class where you do have to kind of, you know, play a little detective, needle in the haystack, dig, you know, uh, there are guys too like. Now, most of these guys, once again, I think are career backups. But some of them, I think, have a little more, like if you, if you at some point, a backup may have to play, right? I mean, that's the thing that people sometimes forget. <laughs> sometimes your backup has to play. So if I'm forced to run someone out there, for four or six games, and my team's good, right? I mean, if my team's terrible, it doesn't matter quite so much. But if my team is good, if, we, if we're making a playoff run and I need to at least go 500 for four games or six games, there are guys I think can at least hold the fort better than some of the guys that I see some people, you know, sort of touting or pushing, pushing up there. Um, I, I made a, a brief mention earlier of, of Grant Kramer. Um, there's also a young Mr. McGuire at Western Illinois, you know, plays, obviously it's a hot, for division, for division, uh, for FBS, FCS, sorry. It's a very high level competition. They play in the same conference, the Missouri Valley Conference as perennial champion uh, in uh, North Dakota State. North Dakota State obviously has Easton Stick. Um, some people were super, super high on him, and I think, you know, the pre-draft process has sort of brought him back to where his, his real value was as a, once again, you know, a backup with some upside. And his athletic testing, you know, was re- receiver-esque. Um, yes. If you, I mean, if, that, if you're into that, he is time, super cool. Yeah, he's a, he's a quick he's a quick pitch athlete. Uh, yeah. he, he can run a little bit. He's extremely quick. He can, and once again, if you you just brought this up with Drew Locke, instead of running into, he runs out of trouble. You know, his instincts for pressure are actually pretty good. Uh, he's not a great thrower of the football down the field. His, you know, underneath and intermediate accuracy is, is decent. Though, once again, I saw he and Marcus McMarion up close and personal when I was at the East-West Shrine game, and I thought McMarion as a passer was, a little bit better at everything than Easton Stick was, but Easton Stick, if you if you want your your backup quarterback to also be one of the better athletes on the team, like you want to throw the ball to your your quarterback, maybe several, you know, you want some whatever special, whatever team he goes to special, Easton Stick's your guy because he's going to be able to uh, he's going to a safety can't stay with him. I mean, you're, it's true, but yeah, I mean. If I'm looking, if I'm looking at guys who can be like decent to good backups, uh, probably three guys I'm looking at. I mean, Will Greer's my QB four, but that's not because I love Will Greer or anything. It's because the quarterback <laughs> no, is really weak. Like, uh, somebody's yeah, got to be there, but uh, but I think Greer can maybe be like a late career Fitzpatrick type player, where he's going to be a guy who's going to come in, he's going to sling the ball around, he's going to make some mistakes, but. He's going to make yep. some nice plays for you as well, and he should keep you in a game. Uh, Garrett Stidham is a really good thrower of the football. It's just he's yep. a ways behind in terms of the mental game. 
Um, my count yep. for him right now is Brock Osweiler. Uh, Stidham's a little more mobile, but those are both big, strong guys who can make every throw but don't process the game well. And I think nope. Stidham would be decent in the backup role that Osweiler sound himself in, uh, uh, which Osweiler was pretty good in this year when he had to step in for Tannehill in Miami. And then uh, Ryan Finley would be the other guy. Who's, like, he's, he's boring. You know, he's a decent enough athlete. He's got a average to below average arm. He's fairly yeah. accurate, but not insanely accurate. He makes pretty good decisions with the ball for the most part. I, he's just, uh, you know, average at everything. He's not special at all, but he's a guy who right. can make your roster, who will, you know, be good in the in the film room and should, you know, stick around with the team for a while. My comparison for Finley was a, once again, I, I guess if he had a weaker arms, because there's only a couple of guys with really strong arms with that, but he is a, a bit of a weaker arms Matt Shaw. Yeah. That's fair. And if you start him for four to six games, you don't get too queasy about it, but he's not the guy you want probably leading your team long-term for you know, a vast number of reasons. I agree with you on Will Greer, but I, agree, I think that both those guys are guys that will hang around for 10, 10 plus years. You know, Will Greer may end up becoming, you know, a, a, a you know, a, Clipboard Jesus, sort of, you know, Whitehurst type, you know, yeah, who yeah. hangs up, you know, good looking, you know, the whole deal, right? You know, has a little Chad, bit of following. Right, yes. And there'll be even some fans who sort of clamor for him if the if the starter starts to struggle a little bit. And they, sure. you know, they will, they will do so until he plays enough games. Like, oh, right, that's right. He's okay, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a... Uh, but I think he won't embarrass himself for the most part. I think right. he'll hang around the league for quite some time. I think he will, you know, he'll collect game checks for, like I said, 10, 10 plus years. And there's a handful of guys like that in this class. Uh, I think this is a good class for backup quarterbacks. If that's what you're looking for, there you're going to find four to, maybe four to six solid backups. Uh, starters, that's the issue. Uh, there's not many of those to be found in this particular class. Probably two-ish. Um, and sure. then, yeah. I think I think Rippon is one of those guys who, like my guy McMarion, situation and coaching will be huge for both of them uh, because neither of them would be ready to play right away. They'll be they'll start their careers as backups, and they will need to be in a situation where somebody's a really good developer of quarterbacks. Which is people keep people talk about guys developing in the NFL. It rarely happens because, well, first of all, teams give like. 85 percent of the snaps to the starters, first of all, and not just the snaps, but their time, their energy, their everything is devoted to their starters. If you're a backup, you better be great at getting mental reps and asking good questions, you know, at the right time so you can get an answer to them. Uh, I'll throw one other guy out there that some people are starting to get all, all excited about because he does have a super strong arm, is Tyree Jackson, maybe the strongest arm in the class, but he is a mess. Uh, his mechanics yeah. are to be charitable, inconsistent. Uh, uh, I, I'd say awful. <laughs> yes, right. I said to be charitable, inconsistent. But yes, he, they, he is a mess. He is a, a full-on hot mess uh, in terms of watching him. That's a guy that I originally was going to grad transfer, and I was like, that's great. That's brilliant. Now, if he's a grad transfer to the right spot, he could become something. And then eventually he decided not to do that. 
Uh, maybe because someone got in his ear and said, you know, next year's class will be better than this one. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I think sometimes guys worry too much about that, trying to read the tea leaves about what the class is. And it's like, if you're not ready, you're not ready. He's not ready. Exactly. Right. So he, he will need to go to some place where they're extremely patient, first of all, because he's the kind of guy that if you're not super patient, you're just going to cut him. You're going to get mad and cut him. Because he's going to do some things that you're not used to seeing for pro quarterbacks. Like, what What was that? So, yeah. Um, he's a mess. But a talented mess. He's one of the more talented quarterbacks. I would say he he's comparable in terms of just raw talent to the top two. The issue is that's the only way he's comparable to the top two. He doesn't have... Uh, much uh, much of a great understanding of what defenses are doing. He doesn't have a great understanding of how to actually deliver the ball consistently to the place where it's supposed to be. Uh, he's late or early, but almost really on time. Uh, like yeah. He's up about left-right. Um, it's like a baseball player who's fouling it off. He's fouling, at first, he's fouling it off because he's getting it too early, right? He's too out, far out in front. And then he re- over adjusts, and now he's swinging too late. That's what he is uh, a lot of times. Where you know he's he's missing a guy because he's he's getting the ball first. He's throwing it too hard for the particular route the guy's running. But he's also you know it's coming out before he should be getting it out there. The timing's off, and then he over adjusts and he's late. If he had any sense of timing and touch, he would be a scary good prospect. But he does not have either of those. Nope. Um, so when you add the mechanics, the timing, the touch, to the lack of understanding of defenses, he's going to need a lot of things to go right for him. Oh, yeah, he's now, got miles if, to go. Yes, yes. With the old saying, he's two, what is it, he's a, two years away from being two years away? Um, yep. The only thing I could suggest is if he somehow, and once again, I'm reminded of the whole Cardinal, remember the Cardinal Jones experiment? I know you weren't really super heavy into Scouting yeah, him, but uh, that's my comfort, Jackson, is Cardell Jones. Well, it's not a bad one because it was the same deal. First of all, a guy who had no business declaring, Cardell Jones could have transferred somewhere and played more football. Uh, yep. Zero business declaring. If you're not ready, you're not ready. <laughs> you know, like, let's, I don't care what the class might be next year. If you're ready to play football, you're towards the top. But whatever, that's my little rant. Um, but once again, yeah, a guy who's super unready with a lot of talent who will frustrate the bejesus out of the coaching staff. So if they are patient, patient men who are secure, like you don't have to worry about getting fired soon or whatever, uh, you may want to try to see what you have in him. But if you think this is not going to be a three or so year process, you just stay away. Like this is not for you if you don't have years to go to develop him. Uh, the ideal situation would be something like the Chargers, like what Curtis says, right, where you've got a, a really great leader at quarterback who doesn't mind trying to help you a little bit, uh, a guy who's sort of generous that way, you know, um, a coaching staff that isn't in danger of losing their jobs in the near future. Um, you know, something like that. He needs a situation where it all – maybe he needs a perfect situation, Walker, where everything falls perfect. And if that happens, he may, and this is a big may, become a starter for a while. Not 
Hall of Fame, not Pro Bowl, just a guy who's a starter for a while. But it takes everything going right for that to even happen. I mean, right. I saw someone float at Josh Freeman. It's like, no, no, no. Josh Freeman was way no. further down the line. Way <laughs> further down the line than this kid. No, no, no. He's like Josh Freeman probably was in high school, you know, in terms of development. Uh, I really had, do wish he'd gone ahead and, and followed through on his plans to grad transfer somewhere. Because even if he didn't start wherever it was he transferred, I think just the <laughs> if he if he went to a place where they at least understood teaching quarterbacking, if he went to Stanford, even if he didn't beat out JJ Costello, I think just being around David Shaw's coaching would have been helpful to him. Uh, he clearly needed he needs a lot of patient coaching. Uh, so that's another guy that some people have started pushing him up the board, and I was like, no, 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 that's not doing anyone any favors. One is it's gonna make it's gonna make you look bad, and two, it doesn't help him. He doesn't need to go earlier; he needs to go late. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a seventh round player. I just think that there's, you know, if that that's the most draft capital I can consider to, using on him right now because it's it's just. You're right. Everything has to go right for him to become a, a start, a, even a decent starter. I mean, yeah. There, there's maybe what well, I, I would say. There's maybe one developmental quarterback who's come a long way in the last few years and is now starter caliber, and that's Jacoby Brissett. And he was still starting with a lot more than Jackson has right now. Yes, right. Jacoby Brissett was probably like, I don't know how you measure these things, but 33% further down the road, I would say. I mean, he's got a lot of catching up to. He's a, If you have three years to work on a guy, it took two years to get Jacoby to the point where he could play. It take you the full three at least to get him ready to play. Yeah. And frankly, yeah. most guys don't have to be good. Right, especially when you get picked that low. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I, I really don't see any sort of ridiculous, uh, realistic scenario in which he becomes a successful NFL quarterback. Yeah, it would be a, it's just a minor miracle, is what right. I'm saying. And it, it does occasionally happen, but... Super occasionally. And once again, Jacoby went to what? Exactly the ideal situation. A coaching staff that has no fear for his job, a generous starter who knows that you're not really a threat. And so, you know, in his time with the Patriots, he had really good coaching. They saw him for what he was, a guy who they were going to try to develop and then he eventually flipped for picks, which is very much a Patriot thing to do. But they had enough to work with that they were able to get him there in two years. The issue with Jacoby is it's not you can't do that in two years. It would take three at least, and it's just so hard to budget that kind of time in a player that is unlikely to to ever play, or at least ever play for years. Yeah. Uh, corners and safeties. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on them very briefly. And we'll close out. I, I I like this corner class quite a bit, but I don't like the corners that most people like. <laughs> I, I, I like some of them. Um, I think that, I think Greedy Williams is like so many of the other, and I hate to say LSU corners, but they have a type there, obviously, right? Uh, they, they look 
perfect. They essentially look like what NFL cornerbacks look like. Uh, some of them have some little deficits in terms of technique, uh, thought processes, and things like that. I like Greedy's athletic potential. He's long, long, he's athletic, he can change direction. His ball skills are all right. They're, they're not great. Uh, my worries are when he does get beat, which happens to everybody, he just flat out panics uh, when that does happen. He does not readjust. He does not get back into phase. He does not, you know, remember his technique. He just starts grabbing and, you know, trying to thrash his way back into a play in a way that occasionally doesn't draw a flag in college, but will always draw a flag in the NFL. He's going to draw flags in the NFL. That's one of the things that worries about me. What worries me about him. I don't think he's ever going to be a great interceptions guy, which to me isn't everything. But I, if I'm drafting a, a, a corner really early, I want a guy that's also going to get me the ball back a little more than I think Greedy will. Greedy, when, if you look at his interceptions, uh, John Ledger did something about uh, sack, how do you put it, sort of qualifying, you know, high quality, low quality, whatever. If somebody does the same thing with interceptions, you would find that Greedy's interceptions tend to be low quality for everybody. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of where he went to, you know, do something great to get it. Usually there, either it's one where he just is squatting and somebody doesn't see that he's just rolled up and squatted there and they just basically throw it to him uh, in a way that kind of mystifying, like, what? what? You, didn't, you didn't see he was just rolled up and it went, no? Um, you know, he, he just jumped a couple of things, but you don't see a lot of those great sort of staying in phase, reading the route, making a great break kind of things. Normally it's more rolled up, squatted, just waiting, reading the quarterback's eyes, and then just takes two steps and boom, the ball hits him in the chest. Well, that, that will sometimes happen in the NFL, I guess, but I don't see him getting a lot of NFL interceptions. Uh, I, I prefer some of the other <laughs> Corners is fast, but tell me what do you like and what do you look for in corners? Uh, I mean, I'm looking for ball skills. I'm, I'm, I also, I, typically I prefer man corners. Uh, I, I like a good press man corner, but um, my CB1 this year is actually like totally not a typical guy I would go for. And that's Byron Murphy, who's kind of small, yeah. not really that fast, played a lot of zone right. at Washington. But ball field outstanding, and my God, that dude's hips are some of the most fluid I've ever seen out of a corner on tape. I mean, he, he flips his hips like it's like he was born doing it. Um, so I, I just his fluidity and coverage I think translates to man as well as the zone that he played predominantly in college. Um, I I really like Amani Oruwariye. I think he's the most solid, consistent man corner that I've watched. Uh, and his athletic testing was really encouraging. Um, some, like, day two guys I really like. Uh, Rocky Asin, he's a huge competitor, really nice man cover guy. Julian Love is just kind of solid across the board. He's not spectacular at anything, but he's good at everything. Um, Justin Lane, if, if he can, he just needs to get a little less grabby down the field, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, a couple couple adjustments here and there, and he could be a really, really good man corner. Uh, David Long uh, can play outside or in the slot. 
really just extremely athletic player. And then some of the more developmental guys that I like are Sean Bunting out of Central Michigan, Clifton Duck yep. out of Appalachian State, uh, uh, Corey Ballantyne, um, and uh, then a guy who's like kind of a corner slash safety. Um, but I really like Malik Warner uh, on day three out of Wagner. Um, again, kind of in like the Seattle corner mold if you're going to play him there. Um, I think I'd prefer to play him at free safety, but outstanding ball skills. Yep. Well, those are a bunch of solid dudes. I already talked a little about Kimon. Uh, ditto on Clifton Duck. I'm a big, big fan of his. Uh, that's another guy that I was hoping would have gotten the, the combine invitation. I think he would have. I think he would have tested well, uh, especially in the things like three cone and short shot. I think he would have been solid yes. in the forty, but not yeah. mind boggling. Agility. He would have been. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, did I want Murphy? It was funny on Murphy because everybody was starting to fall off of him, and then the the on field drills began, and Greedy Williams showed you his weaknesses. Uh, once they started doing all the on-field drills, and Byron Murphy rose back. You know, once he saw the on-field mm-hmm. drills, like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> it's not all about 40s. Uh, at some point, you also want to – the game is largely a game of, of stopping and starting and changing direction. And right. that's where Grady Williams – which is why I, I, my little uniform is Grady Williams, because – He's fine as long as you're running a nine or an eight or whatever, and you just ask him to just run step for step with somebody. He's going to run step for step with anybody, practically. But once the guy starts changing direction, which is what NFL wide receivers do more often than not, things get interesting for, for Greedy Williams. I, I fear for him when he starts facing the Sterling Shepherds and the, the Antonio Browns and the, heck, even, even the, the, you know, Edelman's of the world because those guys not be, might not be able to run past him, but they sure as heck can get him turned in the wrong direction. Sure, yeah. Uh, so that's my concern with him. And, yeah, I'm with you on most of those guys. Like I said, I, there's a bunch of small school kids. I, I could go on and on about small school guys, obviously. But there's just a really strong group of, of small school corners. And I think if some of those guys do get a chance, I think a bunch of those guys will end up making the team. And a couple of them, I think, will be better than, like I said, a lot of the big-name guys. I think there's like about three or four small school corners that will end up being top-level starters um, and end up pushing some, you know, these more well-known guys will end up sort of looking up at them in terms of career, career, uh, career length and quality. Uh, the safety class, I, once again, it's sort of like with it's with not quite. I won't go as far as Rashawn Gary, but a lot of people had Deontay Thompson as like far and ahead their their safety one. And I was like, okay. So I started watching more and more, and I was like, I was still waiting for the once again the moment where I say, oh, now I see it. I never saw it. I, I see a, a NFL starting safety. Don't get me wrong, but I don't see a, a guy taking the top thirty or, or forty or even fifty uh, when I watch him. I'm a Thornhill guy, and it's not just the testing. I loved him before the testing. I, don't, I know he's not for every scheme, and I, you know, I, so I get that. So maybe doing what you want to do with your safeties, he might not be your guy. But 
I do overall like the safety class. I just don't see that one guy that you would take somewhere in the first, you know, 15, 20. I mean, Thornhill is sort of on that, for me, on that sort of bubble between first, second round, and that's my, my top safety. But tell me about your vision of the safety class and, and what do you look for in safeties. And obviously there's strong safeties and free safeties, but increasingly we're living in a world of safeties having to be able to, at least most of the time, do a little, little bit of both. Uh, I mean, if we're considering just safety in general, and this guy's more of a, a nickel corner, but my my top safety, we're using the, the definition liberally, is, is Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. Um, yes. Right. Right. I, and I, 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 he's, my, he's, my, he's my number two, but yes, if you if we were doing a separate ranking for nickel, he'd probably be my nickel one. And then Coach oh, yeah. and Duck might be my nickel two. <laughs> but yeah, because um, Clifton Duck is a guy that probably will struggle if you make him play corner corner, but if you yep. make him a slot corner, now you're cooking with gas. Right. Uh, so so I have him at the top. Uh, Thompson's still safety two for me. Uh, I, I you know the tape from the end of the season is not as good as the tape from the start of the season. He does, he's not crazy athletic, but he, he's a guy who should be solid in this role for a long time. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of the usual suspects. I like Adderley. I like Rap, Savage, Thornhill, yep. Amani yep. Hooker. Um, and after that, I mean, Abrams decent, Marquise Blair's decent, and then you've got a bunch of guys that fill like a specific role. You know, Jaquan Johnson's a thumper. Will Harris is a guy who kind of sprints around and, and makes plays with his speed. Uh, a guy that I would just really like to mention that gets no no love anywhere is John Trell Rocamore out of Utah State. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah, yeah. I will, yeah Utah State has two corners. I'm just saying he don't get enough love, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he, he, I watched him live in the first game of the season against Michigan State. I'm a big State fan, so I, I had that game on, and it was like, and this Rokemore kid is all over the place. He's making every play. And so as the season went on, I made sure to keep an eye on him. And it's just every game, it seemed like he was everywhere. He's always by the ball. Just a really good, like, run support box safety. And it's not like he's a slouch in coverage necessarily. Um, but, I mean, there's no way he was getting a combine invite. He's, his number, testing numbers aren't being publicized anywhere. Nobody's talking about yeah. this guy. I mean, I, I would take him on day three, you know, I – I would take him before I'd take uh, Lucas Denise. I would take him before I would take Ugo Amadi. I'd take him before I would take Tyree Kinnell, you know, uh, before I'd take Sheldrick Redwine. Uh, the, he, he's, he's just a guy who's going to play. I, I think if he gets a chance, he's going to play in the NFL. I mean, he, he's at least good enough to be a special teamer, and I really think that, that just the way he moves to the ball and processes and, and moves through the, the the blockers and you know I, I just think that he's a good fit for the modern NFL game. Yeah, I'm going to uh, not like co-sign a little bit, but sticking with Utah State, and I don't I don't know something about Utah State. Their guys end up being underrated for whatever reason. They're a really good program. They play a pretty decent schedule. And I'll never forget, 
the year that you know Auburn was a a you know a national champion level team, they one of their toughest games all year was against Utah State uh, with Bobby Wagner and Kerwin Williams and uh, mm-hmm. um, um, what's the running back's name? I'm trying to think of who also ended up with Seattle. I think at one point. Um, Oh, well, they had, they had uh, yes, uh, Turbin. Turbin and Kerbin Williams, Robert Turbin and Bobby Wagner went on the team, and they were quarterbacked by Chucky um, Keaton, who unfortunately yeah, got hurt. Keaton. Yep, but he, he was terrific at pre-injury. And, yeah. I, and now, and of course, you know, next year we'll be talking about their quarterback, Jordan Love, who was – Terrific. Yeah, they have a really a good first round. He, he could be a first round pick. He's really good. I think he should be one day. And obviously, their their running back they have uh, right now is, uh, came out early was um, Darwin Thompson. Darwin uh, Thompson. But I'm gonna I'm gonna co-sign on your boy Rockmore, and I'm gonna get talk about my guy Aaron Wade. They have two really good safeties. Um, your guy John Trell Rockmore, and I, I love Aaron Wade. So number three and number four. Uh, Back there in their in the back of their defense are terrific players. Uh, yes, Rockmore is sort of the the tough guy of the two, but Wade. And once again, I don't have testing numbers of him, but I'll be shocked if he didn't test it super well. Um, fluid, fast, had played some corner earlier in his career. A long once again, if you're into that long, right, over six feet tall, mm-hmm. about two hundred six pounds. Turn seven, something like that, uh, runs well, or at least, you know, but again, he's dead. No one's talking about their pro day numbers, but I'm willing to bet. I'll be shocked if Runway didn't test well, I'll put it that way. Uh, he's really looked like a guy who tests well. Uh, and the better ball skills guy of the of the two safeties, he's the one that seemed to have a really good sense of, of how to just go get the football, um, was a guy that was Mountain West Player of the Week, um, probably the, maybe the week after the game you're watching, or maybe the game you're watching, but I know back on uh, 10th of September of, of last year, he was the Mountain West Player of the Week um, on defense, returned an intercept for 95 yards in the Colorado State game later in the season. 50-tackle uh, guy, three TFLs, 28 solo tackles. He had four picks, including, like I said, a, uh, one of the referred for touchdown. Uh, he was terrific against Mexico State, uh, which obviously runs a challenging offense because, you know, you don't keep triple option that much nowadays. And they run a very weird version of triple option. I don't know how to put it, but uh, I don't think you've seen their offense, but it's, a, it's an odd triple option. It's a uh, – I don't know. I'm trying to describe it. It's a very – I mean, it's flexy – spready, shotgunny, triple option with a lot of moving parts. It's a fun offense. Um, I often get one of my, my friends who's more of an offensive mind to sort of break it down, but it's an interesting offense. And with a lot of eye candy, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of stuff to take you in the wrong direction, but he, Aaron Wade, saw right through it, my friend. He did, He doesn't, he's not buying any of your little orbit motions and, you know, uh, Fake, you know, pitches or fake handoffs, none of that. Uh, he was he had ten tackles in that game, including uh, he split a tackle for loss with somebody. He had two interceptions in that game. He had a pass breakup. 
he would have at least five tackles in every one of the last four games of the season. He intercepted, the, like I said, uh, that 95-yarder against Colorado State. They also had um, in the bowl game against North Texas, which I was watching because they had my two of my favorite corners in, uh, on the other side of North Texas. So I've been watching Aaron Wade off and on also, but it was like, you know, it was just, I was in heaven. So I had Aaron Wade. <laughs> I had your guy, Rockmore, on one side at the, at the safety tandem, and then I had Kimon Hall and Nate Brooks playing corner for North Texas. <clears throat> and they were they all showed up. They all played well. Yeah. But, yeah, um, I, I think there's a tendency to – you use the term usual suspects. And I think there's a term – a tendency sometimes for people to lock so much into the usual suspects, they, they miss all the other suspects, right? They miss everything else going on. And that's sort of my my goal is to see them all, right? To see, try to see the whole picture, uh, so that you don't lock so much into the top five, ten, whatever guys that you don't realize as other guys who might be drafted later, even undrafted free agents who end up being, you know, contributors. Or I, I believe in the case of the guys who just discussed. I think both these guys will be starters in the NFL at some point. And you know, I like your guy, I love mine. But, um, but because I just, think, I just think that my guy is a little more ball production, like he gets to the ball, uh, went in the air more. But, yeah, Rockmore is definitely a, a tough, an old-school tough guy who I think in a pinch could play free safety or probably more suited to play strong. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. But, yeah. Now, for people who want to see more of what you do, keep up with you. That what kind of where, where can people find more of your work? Because I'm a big fan, and I, you're growing on me. So if somebody wants to see more of your work, where would they find it, Walker? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Walker Kelly13. Um, I also have a podcast with my friend. Uh, it goes by Jibs. Um, that's at Jibber Walker Pod. Uh, yeah, we, we just. Uh, yeah, we signed we signed on with uh with the downtown sports network that's just just uh, starting up. So yeah, so so we're doing well with that. Um, yeah, uh, uh, on my Twitter account usually I'll post uh I'll post when I update my my spreadsheet for the uh, um the prospect list and my rankings. I also do a little bit of bracketology as well on the side. So I've been posting a lot of yeah. a lot of that with the tournament coming up. Um, but yeah, uh, just, uh, my, my Twitter account at Walker Kelly 13 and the podcast really where I get most of my content, uh, my content out. So, uh, yeah, if you guys want to check me out there, I would really appreciate it. Would you like to write for somebody? Uh, I, I do a little bit of fantasy writing for, uh, TFF gurus, but, uh, with, with being a full-time college student and, uh, and working part-time as well, I think this is about all I can handle right now. Okay. 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 So I'm just subtly letting you know that there's people who would be interested in having you write for them when the time is right. I'll just let you know that subtly. Um, okay. Is, okay. <laughs> but tell, also, tell Jim to say hello. I've known Jim since the old fan IQ days, so I'm, 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 I'm a big fan of his as well. So tell Jim to say hello. I will. Um, excellent. Well, first of all, Walker Kelly, I think you're – here to stay uh, unless you decide not to. Uh, you have, to me, you have what it takes to be, you know, one of the the guys, one of the guys that people become to come to trust and and depend on. And you know, I believe in your work, and I think it's going to grow as you keep going. And obviously, 
get better at this, right? That's the whole point. We keep getting better, keep getting better. Uh, a little bit better every day. So I uh, thank you so much for your time. I thank you for your talent. I thank you for your attention. Uh, how far off are you? One last question. How far off are you from graduation? How, how much time more time do you have to go? i got a year and a half. Okay. I'll be patient. But uh, <laughs> when, the, when the time comes, you and I should talk more, okay? All right. You got it. Excellent. Well, I will break rest your eating. Let your girlfriend know that I, I apologize for taking so much of your time. <laughs> All right. I will. Okay, take care, Walter. Walk, Walker. Good I know I'm going to do that. Oh, I made it all to the end, and then I screwed it up. Uh, good, no, you're not the, you're good, you're not the first. You won't be Walker the last. But yeah. Kelly. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Yeah, you too, man. Okay. So that concludes this particular edition of Feeling a Draft. Uh, this is a not a two-a-day, but a two-a-week. We'll have also a Sunday one with my uh, usual co-host, Jim Coburn. And we'll be joined by, um, by Malik, who is uh, a lot of things, but amongst, things, uh, amongst other things, an, an HBCU guru type will be joining me. And we may even have a super secret guest who has flaked on me a couple of times but says maybe for sure, definitely, kind of, maybe. He may uh, also be there Sunday. So uh, once again, it has been a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.